origins of the gods, tricksters, and UFOs, it's not what you think. With special guest, Dr. Gregory Little. Episode 36 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin. I'm Michelle. And I am Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Episode 36. Michelle, what's going on here? Well, you know, we talked about this, and even though it's a new season, just to get back to the episode numbers, so we're we're not pod fading, we're just going to drop the term seasons from the shows. Yeah, so we're going to reorder all the shows and just go in sequential order and start from zero and all the way to where we're at now. Yeah, the, the titles of the shows are still saying the same, it's just getting rid of the whole seasons and going back to just the episode numbers. Exactly. So today is August 12th, 2022, and we have an amazing guest on today. We ended up talking with Dr. Greg Little, who is one of the co-authors of the book Origin of the Gods, and we talked to him for almost two hours, two hours and 20 minutes. So we're going to keep all the rest of the stuff in the show kind of short and sweet today so you guys can put away some time. And take a listen. Great conversation. A lot of information. A lot of information. And we maybe only covered about a third of the book. So, and by the way, the book is fantastic. I'm almost done at this point. So everyone, we want to make sure that you do know that you can find us on YouTube. Just go ahead and search us out by typing in Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. It's all one word or... Just find the link in our show notes and it'll take you right to our show. In one of our previous shows, we had tried that segment music from the beyond um, for, you know, local bands to be able to get some exposure. Um, However, while all the other podcasting platforms play nice with this, uh, YouTube did not. So unfortunately, that is one segment of the podcast that we had to eliminate for right now. Yeah, complete bummer. But uh YouTube was being YouTube. But you know what? We still like stories. Yes. So if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. And if you like the podcast and would like to rack out some of the latest swag and help support the podcast, head over to our online store at miufopodcaststore.online. And actually, I recently created five new designs. 
So they are a front and back design with the little driver in the UFO over the left breast pocket of the shirt. And then on the back has our driver holding the whole earth. Yeah, so that's the name of our alien dude on the shirts. We're naming him Driver. Yes, so. yes we're calling him Driver for now. So I know other shows out there call him all kinds of different names. Leroy. <laughs> so, and, no, yeah. we like Driver. We Driver's like Driver. A, Driver's a good name. He's named after the job that he does since, you know, they're probably non-sentient AI drones flying these things around. At least that's one of the big theories out there so hey we'll just call him driver well and don't forget to check out our patreon page if you would like to support the podcast there it is patreon.com forward slash m-i-u-f-o-s-p-e-p where you can sign up we can't wait to give you a shout out for all of your support speaking of which shout out to our friend hava for giving support along with her family to the podcast wayne i think to keep the show rolling we need some coffee Oh, I totally agree with that. How can we get some coffee? I'm getting kind of hungry, though, too. Oh, some homemade food. I'm thinking some homemade soups and some great desserts. Well, then I think it's time for me to talk to you about New Boston Coney and Grill. Oh, please tell me about New Boston Coney and Grill. Traveling near New Boston, Michigan? Hungry? Well then, you need to check out New Boston Coney and Grill tucked away at 37005 Huron River Drive. With daily specials, homemade soups and desserts, and a staff that makes you feel like family, you will not be disappointed. Give them a try for dine-in or carry-out at 734-606-5313. You can find their page, including their menu, on Facebook. Bon Appetit! Well, that was a shameless plug for our friends over at New Boston Coney and Grill. Can't help but talk about New Boston Coney and Grill. I know, they're great. And I think that's where Driver likes to stop and get some food, too. I think Driver does like to stop at New Boston Coney and Grill. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Michelle. I think it's that time. It's time for What's in the News. Yes, baby. What is in the news? God. Seriously. From Exemplore.com, Connecticut woman captures triangle-shaped UFO on camera. This is just August 4th of this year, so, I mean, recently, within the last week. Well, I will say... UFO news has become very quiet lately. This is one of those websites that you find when you start clicking on stuff on the other news sites. So we just happened to stumble upon this. It starts out, so-called flying triangles or black triangles are among the MVPs of the UFO world. They've been reported all over the world for as long as folks have been reporting UFOs and in Connecticut, where this sighting takes place since the early Cold War. The reports all bear a striking similarity, enormous, silent black triangular craft that hover mysteriously in the sky. 
They move slowly with no visible means of lift or propulsion and can also zip away at near instantaneous speeds. Some have lights on the three points. Some have those three and then a larger light in the center. Still others have running lights all along their sides. They like to show up at military bases or in populated areas and just hang in the sky as if observing whatever is going on down below. That sounds just like what we dealt with. No propulsion, no sound, lights on the bottom, except for not a light in the center. Right, there was no light in the center. The running lights on the on the back end that I was able to see. Yep. Yeah, this is crazy. So this sighting in Connecticut, where these things are often documented, is in keeping with standard black triangle UFO behavior. This one is floating nice and low over a city street. Connecticut is a particular hotbed for this type of UFO, with most reports coming in the 80s and 90s. Nice to see the triangles haven't left town. One of the true mysteries of flying triangle behavior is how brazen and unaffected they seem to be of being observed. These are not covert aircraft, high-technology spy planes observing what is going on. These things fly low, they shine bright lights, move slowly, and don't seem to care at all who photographs them. You know, I'm picking up a little bit of an attitude in this uh, yeah, there's article. Definitely a tone there, and that's where the article ends. I mean, and there's lots of other links that you can check out, like father and son film a UFO over the California desert. You know, not that we haven't heard of California before yeah. in these, but um, but yeah, I mean, it you take it for what it you know what it's worth. There's a video that's embedded into the link as well. Yeah, the person that uh, claimed to see this triangle did capture it on her camera. And so the video is embedded. It's not much of a video. Um, and it just looks like three lights that are equal distant apart in the shape of a triangle, but you can't see any body or anything. Yeah, unlike me with a phone in my purse at my feet at the floor bed of or the floor basin of the Jeep. Yeah, but at two thirty in the morning. I mean, come on. <laughs> we're not we're not thinking straight. We just want to get home, and you know, the last thing we were thinking about is grabbing a phone because we we didn't even know what we were really looking at. Now, when we're out traveling, I have my <laughs> phone nearby. If he's driving, my phone is like right next to me, ready to go. Yep. But who's to say that your phone, you know, with the camera at night or even during the day, you know, these things will get. What we saw up. maybe just that one, you know, one in a million chances of a lifetime. All right, Michelle. I think it's time for us to get this interview going so everybody can hear this and listen to Dr. Greg Little tell us about the book Origin of the Gods. So why don't you fill us in? Well, Dr. Gregory Little has a master's degree in psychology and a doctorate in counseling and educational psychology from Memphis State University. Since the early 1980s, has actively researched such topics as UFOs, psychic abilities, archaeology, and paranormal phenomena. He is an author or co-author of over 70 books and workbooks and has been featured in 14 documentaries on the History Channel, National Geographic, and other networks. He writes about Native American mounds and spiritual practices and spent over 10 years investigating underwater sites in the Bahamas and ancient sites in Central America as part of the Edgar Cayce's organization's Search for Atlanta's Project. 
He is co-author of the new book, Origins of the Gods, with Andrew Collins. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, please help us welcome to the podcast, Dr. Greg Little. Dr. Little, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Just call me Greg. That'd be fine. It's a lot less cumbersome, and I don't really care anymore. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> right. just, hey, just, taking it off the formal ladder. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. I'm going to admit right now, I am six hours into the 10-hour audiobook and absolutely love it. Great great book. And uh, I got to tell everybody right now, you got to get this book, whether you want the audio book or the the paperback. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, Andrew, uh, Andrew Collins, uh, who's very well known British author. Uh, he's on the show Ancient Aliens and on the William Shatner show, uh, The Unexplained, and a bunch of others. Andrew is uh, co-author on it. Uh, the first half of that book I wrote, and you're working your way into the second half. I do want to say this. I believe, and I've said this repeatedly, Andrew knows this, although he'll go, ah, no, no, that's not true. But I think the most brilliant material ever written about UFOs, alien visitations, people having paranormal experiences, I believe Andrew's chapters, there's like four chapters. I think it's 36, 37, 38, and 39. Uh, most brilliant stuff that I have ever read. Uh, and that's the physics of all this and the interdimensional component of it. And I, I pretty much stopped at that point in my half. And Andrew picked it up. It oddly started in archaeology, but quickly got back to the paranormal. So I do I do want to throw that in. Andrew uh, is brilliant, far, yeah. far better than I am in all this. And I've been around a while, but uh, Andrew was, is really the driving force with it, but I'm glad to be here nonetheless. Yeah. Well, we're very happy to have you here and a little bit about my background. I'm an earth and space science teacher. So when you talk about a, a lot of this stuff and the connections made to the earth and things, which I want to get to a little bit later in the podcast, I just, it, it just covers everything that I think people need to know about the different possibilities that are out there and the connections that can be made with the, basically the earth system, looking at everything as an earth system. They recently, you know, changed all that and, you know, act like they're talking about something new, but it seems like the shamanistic practices already had this covered and and we just had to throw some words on it to make it sound more scientific. So we can call it an earth system science. <laughs> so yeah. that's a good insight. Yeah, and sorry. then my background is I've been teaching middle school English and mythology for over 20 years. And so my look into it is a lot about the origin myths and the stories that guide human behavior. That's where I'm coming from. 
Yeah, and I also have a background in psychology as well and child development. So uh, everything in this book, and I'm telling everybody truthfully that you really need to get this book. It, it covers all the basis, has some great hypotheses in there, and really good evidence to back some of these things up. So I appreciate it. Very kind words. Uh, yeah. I appreciate it very much. Well, let's let's go ahead and start this out, Greg, um, for our audience that need to get to know a little bit more about you. Um, Can you give our audience a little bit of your background and what made you decide to investigate shamanism, UFOs, and the paranormal? So where did it all start? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. I've answered that before and it generally takes me way too long to answer it. Uh, I'm pretty old now. Uh, I started graduate school in 1972 uh, which was actually a year late. I should have started in 71, but I started in 72. And uh, I had, before I started that, or around in 1971, I had a major professor uh, who was a PhD from Vanderbilt University. Uh, he was a uh, psychopharmacologist, and that was my initial area, my initial training. I actually published in 1971 and 72 in the International Society for Neuroscience Publications, uh, way back then. Uh, and we were really active in in mainstream drug research. Uh, we had drugs from the DEA coming in that we would test, test on animals, do all kinds of behavioral stuff. We also did a lot of uh, surgery on animals. I did a lot of that. I kind of regret a lot of it now. But anyway, here's the point. His wife uh, had an MD. She was a psychiatrist from Vanderbilt University. And for whatever reason, now, I'd always had an interest in UFOs, but I really didn't have too much of an interest to do much else with it. I was into trying to make a living. I was working full time uh, all the way through college and then got a graduate assistantship. But they when I when they got me, uh, befriended me and he became my major professor. Uh, I actually worked with them for many years after that. They began taking me to uh, trance channeling uh, all over the place. Uh, where people would do it, even some famous people we saw. They took me to uh, spoon bending. I don't know if you remember that or not. Back in the 70s, Yuri Geller and so, you know, you oh, hold yeah. a spoon. And you could, yeah, we went to a lot of those, did it ourselves, never worked for me, never worked for the psychiatrist or psychologist, but, you know, whatever. Uh, we did experiments in the laboratory with uh, pyramids. If you if you recall this back in the 70s, pyramid power was a big deal. They said if you build a pyramid uh, according to certain specifications, you know, the angles and how big it is and all that, you could put a dull razor blade in it and the razor blade would sharpen or you could put plants in it and they would do really well or you could put food in it and it wouldn't spoil. So we, we actually tested all that in our labs. We didn't have any good results with any of that. Uh, There was a lot of other things that people said you could do. You could have flowers bloom in the winter. Um, We weren't able to do that. Uh, Plants supposedly had feelings. We tested that in the laboratories using state-of-the-art physiograph machines with experiments. And we found out that, indeed, plants do have feelings. And plants, plants can identify people, which is very weird. 
but we did several experiments on that philodend- giant philodendron plants we took into the laboratories into a Faraday cage, basically a large copper shielded room and did these experiments. So that was kind of surprising, but that that was kind of my introduction to what was really going on. Then in the 70s, mid 70s, uh, I did uh, some research for the Office of Naval Research. I've mentioned some of that in Origins of the Gods. Um, got to know some of the other researchers with the ONR, Office of Naval Research, even though I was a graduate student at Memphis uh, working on a grant from the Navy. Uh, that's how it worked. And I wound up testing thousands of Navy pilots around the country, actually. So uh, that's kind of how I got into it. I got very interested in UFOs, of course. Uh, uh, my first book came out in 1986, and it was called The Archetype Experience. Uh, and it was a follow-up to Carl Jung's last book, which was called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. No one had ever written a follow-up book to Jung's work, uh, so that's what I did. Basically got my doctorate and then shoved all that stuff aside, went straight in and wrote that UFO book. And then at the same time, through dreams, got into Indian Mounds, which is another complete story. Uh, I'm known mainly in the outside and in this paranormal world for Indian Mound stuff. I did a wrote an encyclopedia on mounds, came out in 2009, revised it in 2016. Uh, So anyway, that's kind of the story. I wrote several other UFO books along the way. Some of them did really well. Others, uh, I didn't even care if they did well or not. They were just things to say. So that's that's kind of a brief background, although professionally, I'm a criminal psychologist, uh, and I still do that work. I have done that uh, since 1975, uh, and I'm still in that field. So- that's my background. Well, and you mentioned the Indian mounds. So that kind of goes in with this next question that I have for you. A lot of people studying UFOs and the paranormal look to places like Egypt and Mesopotamia, et cetera, due to the belief this is where human civilization first began. But you really focus on the Native American stories and myths. Why? Well, because we know more about their what they believe than we do these other places. Like in Egypt, all we really have, we have the pyramids, we have the the ancient texts, the pyramid texts, that kind of stuff. Uh, but we don't, and no one's ever worked out completely what they really believed. Uh, the same thing is true in all those Euro- ancient European cultures. Uh, Stonehenge, Stonehenge is there. We can see it and it's like, oh my God, that's incredible. But we don't know what they were actually, what the beliefs were about it. What were their rituals? We do know Stonehenge uh, was aligned to stars and the sun and the moon and all that. Uh, Gobekli Tepe is another good one. Incredible site. Lots of artifacts, but but we have no way of knowing exactly what their belief system was. That's not true in Native Americans. Uh, starting in the 1500s, when the first Europeans came in, uh, Native American cultures were still practicing mound building. They were still doing the ceremonies. In fact, they were still doing the ceremonies up until basically 1900 or so, until the federal government pretty much shut down everything that they were doing except for the stupidest stuff, which they allowed them to do. So we know a lot about Native American stuff. So I'm kind of the uh, American expert in the book, while Andrew is the expert in everything else. Now, I will say this. Everybody knows who Graham Hancock is. Graham Hancock is now on the side where Andrew and I wrote some books many years ago, well, 2014, it's quite a few years, 
called the Path of Souls. And in that, uh, we said that the Egyptian belief system is pretty much identical to the Native American one. And both the Orion, the constellation of Orion, and the constellation of Cygnus, uh, which is best known as the Northern Cross, those are both integral to the death journey in both Egyptian lore and Native American. But I'm here. I know the most about mounds. Uh, I don't know enough about that ancient, the ancient evidence coming out of the European or Asian areas uh, or the Middle East. I'm just not that good at that. So I left that to Andrew. That was our agreement. Okay. One of the things I picked up on in your book, and I've heard other people talk about this, but I thought you had a very interesting take on it. And that's of Carl Sagan. And a lot of what a lot of people don't know about him, you know, a lot of people in the UFO community, I guess you could say, call him, you know, like the Mr. Extraordinary Claims Require Extraordinary Evidence, you know. So since people use that quote as like the skeptical hand wave to anything paranormal and UFO, and they don't even know where it comes from, really. Because I know Sagan quoted that from somebody else. Yeah, I think it's LaPlante. I've I, I quoted that in the book and gave the original, but I think it's LaPlante. It's a very old yeah. quote. And Sagan just moved a few words around. Right. Uh, and of course, Sagan is considered the greatest skeptic of all time, although he believed in ancient aliens. That's another story. And that's where you're going with this. I'll bet. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go. And I was going to ask you if you could give our audience some insight into what Sagan really thought about UFOs and extraterrestrial contact and even into sure. the ancient alien hypothesis. So, OK, so. The the everybody knows the modern UFO UFO era began in 1947, and it really kind of in the late 50s and 60s there was just an enormous amount of interest in it everywhere. It was in the newspapers and TV virtually every single day. We're kind of getting back to that now, but anyway, there were reports day after day of people seeing things. So Carl Sagan actually did something that other astronomers had done before him and that is he calculated the the probability of life on other planets and everybody that's ever done that has said well yeah it's obvious there's life everywhere in the universe uh it there has to be in fact we pretty much know that now from all the dna and dna like substances found in meteorites it's just everywhere and chances are they're going to find it on mars the moon if we ever get to to really looking they'll find it there too but anyway um and i'll say that viruses are dna that's all they are they're a clump of dna in a capsule uh and they replicate uh, and viruses are everywhere just everywhere uh, so they're bringing, they're moving life and changing life all the time too. So bring it back to Sagan. So in 1963, Sagan wrote this article and published it in the uh, a peer-reviewed journal called Space and Science. And in this, he calculated the number of planets that he believed that that supported life, the number of planets he believed that had been uh, so life supportable before us going back in some cases millions if not billions of years therefore that civilization would have advanced a lot more than we have and so then he calculated the odds of them actually wanting to visit earth and see earth uh, just randomly randomly doing it uh he summarized his article several ways it's it's 
to him, it was obvious that they had to have come in very ancient times. He said that he believed they probably started around two million years ago. Now, that's when the Ice Age hit its height. But of course, dinosaurs were gone then. Uh, Human beings were around, but were supposedly pretty primitive. So two million years ago, up until he said the end of the Ice Age, around 10,000 BC, they would have greatly increased the frequency of their monitoring or visits. Now, in his in this, he actually gave us a number, too, of how many visits. But in this, he said that uh, it's it's not likely that there are beings like us and they're traveling between star systems for millions of years or thousands of years, that it's that it's probably almost like a drone, something that's remote. Uh, and they're watching us, they're observing us, they're watching our development. And so in summary, he said they've obviously visited probably at least 10,000 times. Now, that sounds like a lot, 10,000 visits. But when you consider there's millions of UFO reports every year, 10,000's a drop in the bucket. And you've got to consider this, it's 10,000 visits over 2 million years which averages out to about one visit every 200 years. So that's what that's what Sagan said. But paradoxically, because of that article, Sagan was repeatedly asked about UFOs. Well, what about all these UFO reports? What are these things? People are reporting aliens and a landing in the backyard, walking out and handing a farmer a pancake. That's a that's a real case uh, that, that happened. <laughs> uh, Joe Simonton. But anyway, uh, Sagan said something else has gone on with that. All those UFO reports, all these different beings, there is no way that that is alien in the sense that they are living beings like us coming here from another planet, visiting and doing whatever. He just didn't believe it. He said there's far too many reports. They're being seen all over the earth. They're being seen and reported by people of all different classes. People immediately attribute to what they're seeing the UFO moniker saying, oh, it's an unidentified flying object. It's extraterrestrial. But he didn't believe that's what that was. He never said exactly what it was. But in in his book, I think it's called Demon Haunted Universe. uh, He hints around that it's something that is attached to the earth, that what is really going on, what the real bottom line is, is that there's something that emanates from or is attached to the earth somehow. And that is what was causing all of these unknown paranormal manifestations. So that was Carl Sagan saying this. Oh, I'll add one more thing. Carl in 1963, Carl Sagan said that he believed that archaeologists should look for proof of these ancient visitations. And he even zeroed in on ancient Sumeria. Where Zachariah Sitchin, you know, most of his work was about ancient Sumeria. But he believed that ancient Sumeria might be the place where they would find the evidence of it. And he mentioned Baalbek, Baalbek and he mentioned the uh, astro- the yeah, the, the Soviet physicist who had come up with the Baalbek as a spaceport idea some years earlier. Uh, so that that's Sagan. And I, I, I'm not smarter than Carl Sagan was. I don't know more than Carl Sagan did. Andrew says the same thing now. Andrew was actually a, a skeptic, but when he really looked at the statistics and all that, he he really believes that there probably were ancient aliens here in the past. So 
but not like the show might put on, like right. everything comes from him. He doesn't believe that. I don't believe that either. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Uh, my standpoint is, is that humans have been around on this planet a lot longer than we're given credit for. And in that time, we became probably pretty advanced, advanced enough to create awesome structures like Gobekli Tepe, the all of the uh, the polygonal megalithic structures that are put together with these rocks that are, you know, almost seem like they were like put into um, like a mold in like Peru. And, you know, up on a mountain, they have these massive megalithic structures. And um, like you were saying, ball back and all of these things, I think there was a technology. And I think my idea is, is that like the ancient Egyptian pyramids and stuff are a lot older than what they're given credit for. I know there's there's a back and forth that goes around about the, the Sphinx because they look at the water damage in the enclosure and things like that. And, you know, say, Hey, well, it, it was way before 12,000 years ago when it was raining here in Egypt to cause this kind of stuff. But there's a lot of things that are included in like myths and things like that. And that's why I was interested in getting your ideas on the native American stories and the myths of these gods or beings coming down from you know the sky and and how they broke the world apart in their origin myths and and things like that that sound like the big bang well it is they had their there's cause their cosmology is a big bang they use the word singularity that's in the book Uh, they do have loads and loads of stories in their legends about beings coming down they always come down in light they always come down in balls of light uh sometimes they're very big large you know giant luminous balls of light and the beings are in it sometimes um uh they're translucent beings that just physically appear but there are many many of those stories i think in the book i put probably about eight or nine of those because they're all very similar. They almost always come at a time when a chief or an elite member of the society or a warrior, somebody who's important is having a crisis of some sort. And it might be the death of, in one case, a chief's wife was killed uh, in a battle and he literally went up to a mountain, made a stone circle and sat, was going to sit in it till he died, which was actually something that was pretty common that that was done. If you were in mourning, you would you would sometimes sit until you die. Well, he was sitting there and he saw this light, giant light just coming down from the sky. And it sat on the ground outside of this stone circle and a being walked out of it. And the being looked a lot like him, uh, as far as we can tell. But he was translucent. That is, he was um luminous and you could see through it sort of uh but it told him the being told him that he needed to return to his tribe because there were important things that he needed to do and in truth uh i think i uncovered at least five of those stories that are very well accepted in native american literature so where where i had started from earlier and never really got to explain like when when the first europeans started going through and the black robes came in after that. The black robes were the friars and the priests. 
Well, the, some of the black robes started collecting information from the Native American tribes, the from the shaman, from the medicine people. The Smithsonian actually sent teams to a whole bunch of tribes to get information from them. One very famous one that I talked about in the book is when they went and to the Zuni tribe a couple times and collected all of their medicines, which they then sent to the Smithsonian. They analyzed them. And a lot of our modern medicines come out of those, but you very seldom hear any of that. Um, when the this, Smithsonian this publications about that said that uh, the, the researchers who were sent from the Smithsonian were convinced that the natives figured out the effectiveness of these methods, these medicines for, through trial and error, trial and error. But the natives told them that the spiritual forces appeared and told them and gave them this knowledge. The natives told them that repeatedly. So there were early ethnographers. That was the term. So the black robes were first. And then you had ethnographers who were legitimately interested in Native American cultures. There were some small areas of U.S. government where they really had people who wanted to try and preserve as much information as possible. So they went to the Native American tribes starting in the late 1600s and began trying to get information from the shaman and the medicine people and write it all down. The Smithsonian's Bureau of Ethnology, that's what it was called initially, and they changed their name to the Bureau of American Ethnology, has a lot of that in writing. They have a lot of this literature uh, and what the Native Americans believe. So it's the only instance I know of where the actual belief systems were collected and written down. That's why the Native American beliefs are so important here. And if that's where, if you want to go to their cosmology and just explain it, that's I'd be glad to do that. If that's where you want to go. Yeah, I, I think that would be uh, worthwhile because I, I'm interested in this idea of how they use the the word trickster and how the trickster plays into everything, because I'm wondering with modern ufology and all this stuff that's going on today and, and the community, as far as I'm concerned, is kind of tearing itself apart. And that could be by design by certain people that are, you know, working with the government and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on with UFOs and stuff. But, I'm also wondering if there's not a trickster element that's involved in all of this. Now, there might be some technology that's involved that, you know, we've been working on or skunk works or whatever that, that may be working on certain things or experimenting on people. I mean, it's not like they've never done that before and, yeah. you know, put on a show to see, you know, how somebody might react to something or, you know you know, a little bit of psychological studying of groups. And I'm just looking at everything now in this modern day, because my wife and I saw this giant flying triangle here just north of us in Canton in the, it was at two 30 in the morning. It was maybe a hundred feet off the ground, maybe 200 feet off the ground. And it was about 300 feet on a side with three glowing orbs in each corner. And it had a skin that looked like it was absorbing any light that was coming from street lights up to it. And it was just sitting there. I thought it was a crashing aircraft. I thought they were looking for Metro airport and that was the end of it. 
But this thing was just sitting there. She asked me, when did our military get something like this? I said, that's not military. I'm former military. You know, I've been around aircraft all my life. I understand aerodynamics and nothing that big can just sit there without a sound in the middle of the night, you know, two 30 in the morning and then rotate as we, you know, went around and got on the expressway and I'm trying to gun it to get out of there. It rotates in place and starts moving very slow parallel to us. We lost sight of it on the expressway. And when we came back up and we figured it was going to be like right off the passenger side of the vehicle, it was gone. Mm. And I have no idea. Never seen anything like that. Never heard of anything like that and then we started our facebook group before we started doing a podcast to kind of figure out hey what's going on here in michigan is there something going on and come to find out you know we've in it's been two years and we have what now almost six thousand people on our group who talk about triangles and it, it's it's just crazy, but I'm wondering if this is some type of a, a trickster element, but I guess we need to go back and see what, what did the natives think of uh, their cosmology? And then what was this trickster element? Okay. Well, your, your experience is really interesting. Um, I assume you've written it up. Yes, uh, we okay. put it on the National UFO Reporting Center. I sent it in to MUFON like okay. a couple of days after that it happened, but never heard anything back. Huh, okay. um, but it inspired us to start this podcast, um, which was about a year after, no, two years after we had the, uh, the sighting. Yeah, we started the group in 2018, about a month after the event. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. then we started the podcast last year around January or February of uh, 2021. Yeah, I'm I'm a nuts and bolts guy. I'm not really big into the paranormal and UFOs and stuff. But what we've been uncovering and interviewing with people and the things that we've been uncovering through studying Michigan and what happened here in 1966 with J. Allen Hynek, which I know Mm -hmm. you talk about. There's a Missouri component that you know the the villain strikes again and I don't think a lot of people understand and I know he he took back everything that he said and you know started the high neck UFO research yeah and, and he he was under pressure because he was working for the government I mean let's go I, I understand that but during that time and it destroyed all kinds of communication and and people here in Michigan because we had two weeks of UFOs flying around. Police officers were chasing them down the road, trying to take pictures of them. Uh, hundreds of co-eds at Hillsdale College had seen it. Mm. Uh, you know, they're landing in, in farmers' fields. And, you know, and they were, he tells everybody it was swamp gas. Yeah. Well, in the, the Missouri cases, which occurred over many, many years, seven years, uh, Heineck was there for one day, just one day. And there right. were hundreds and hundreds of, I mean, there were 400 witnesses that one police department had come up with 400 witnesses. Uh, there were photos. Uh, there was a, it was a study done by for seven years by Southeastern Missouri state university, SEMO, which is in um, 
Kate Gerardo and the chairman of the physics department, uh, PhD in physics, conducted the study, had 200 other professionals working with him. Uh, and they made a conclusion too. They saw, the, and I'll, I'll say this, they saw what looks sometimes like nuts and bolts, but it's not. That's what they, that's the conclusion that he came up with. It is something intelligent. We'll get to what that is, I think, here in a bit. Uh, but your your experience is really interesting. And so let me describe what the trickster is, because okay. that's where you started with this. Okay, the trickster I became aware of it in reading Carl Jung's material because I was interested in Jung long before I got interested in, in the Native American literature. So the trickster uh, Jung talked about quite a bit, even in the Uf his UFO book, he mentioned it several times. So uh, Native American ideas or mythology is really divided into two types of literature. One is called commonplace myths. Those are the ones that almost everybody knows about. Those are creation myths where uh, a chief and his wife live in the sky. Uh, the chief accidentally pulls up a tree and, and causes a hole in the ground. His wife comes over and falls through the hole. Then he throws the kids through the hole and he goes down. And that's how the earth was populated. That is a commonplace myth. Uh, that's Iroquois, by the way. Uh, there are lots of others. There are lots of these commonplace myths that have coyotes in them, which is a, a trickster, or owls, or they have wolves, they have turtles, there are spiders, virtually every animal is included in them. Those are commonplace myths. Those are great stories. Those stories were told to the populace. Uh, they're kids' stories. They are to not just entertain, but to teach morals, to teach right from wrong, to also... Um, Teach children how to use animal skills in real life. Here's how the animals handle this, and this is something that you can learn. So that's what most people know of. If you go to the store and you want a book on Native American legends and myths, that is what you'll find. The other side of it is called sacred knowledge. Sacred knowledge was kept secret. There were secret societies. Uh, there was actually a breach in a secret society some years ago when all of the secrets were revealed. Um, and uh, I actually, I think that was in Denise of an Origins, the book before this one with Andrew, where I talked about that and how that took place and what happened. Um, but they had secret societies that held their cosmological beliefs and the underlying beliefs, which were used to perform rituals in particular, a death ritual where you would send the soul somewhere. And according to their belief, the elite had the power to dictate where a person's soul was going to go. And to some extent, that is how they controlled the populace. They also had rituals to interact with tricksters and other entities. So let's talk about where all those other entities are and what a trickster is. So let's start with the formation of it all. In the beginning, they say there was nothing but a singularity, a point of pure spiritual energy. That's what it was, a singularity, a point of pure spiritual energy. It was all that existed. For whatever reason, it developed two opposing forces within it that were kept in balance. It, and it, you can visualize it like the yin-yang symbol. You have two pieces fitting together in a circle, and you know they they look different, but they they fit nicely. And of course, if you take a singularity and put two opposing forces in it, it's not a singularity; 
That caused the Big Bang. The instant it developed these two opposing forces, it created everything. The Zuni tribe talked about it as a container of all. That is the exact translation of their term for it, a container of all. And they said that when something happened, it churned, it churned within itself. Then it thought outward. It created everything. That's how they described it. And that's as good as the Big Bang in physics. You know, it just blows up and that's I mean, it. It sounds like it with just different words. Yes, I mean, exactly. Honestly. Absolutely. So. What happened with the creation of the universe? It was done to keep these two forces into balance. That's what it was done. The physical world is is the place where these two forces play. They have an interplay. That is where they maintain the balance. So you have an, uh, they call it the upper world. In children's stories, they talk about the upper world. And the upper world has the sun it has large raptor birds that are flying around in the sky. The lower world generally is beneath the water and below the earth. Animals that live underground, uh, animals that will go from the ground underground like snakes or ground squirrels and things are part of it. Fish are part of it. Uh, that's the lower world. The upper world is a power, and it is a power of creation. Creation. Creation and order. So the upper world forces create things in this physical world and they create harmony and order. The lower world is the spirit of disorder or the spirit of entropy. Entropy is the physics word for it. It, it basically means that no matter what you create, no matter what is made, it begins to degrade back to its most primordial state from the moment it's created. You can maintain it. You can do everything you can to keep it gone, but eventually it's going to degrade back to its most primordial state. So remember, everything in the beginning was spiritual. Just like Carl Sagan said, we're all made from stars. We're all made of stardust. We are. Well, they said everything was spiritual. So this physical world is a physical manifestation of spiritual energy. There are different levels of this spiritual energy. Dirt is the most primordial form of spiritual energy. Rock is solidified spiritual energy. Water is flowing spiritual energy. Fire is a release of spiritual energy. Crystals, the purer the crystals are, they are condensed spiritual energy that you can use. There are loads of crystal rituals. Uh, some of them are really impressive. I've seen, I've done them myself and, uh, and bathrooms, the best place to do them in a dark night, man, you can do impressive stuff with crystals. Sounds bizarre, but it's true. Anyway. Was okay. that when you were talking about the, when I heard you talk before about getting some large crystals yep. and going in a bathtub, turn off the light, turn off the light and put, get water in that tub, do it under there, man. And you can light the bath, you can light the bathroom up. Yeah. It's very impressive. Is the that the piezoelectric it's, it's It's a little piezoelectric, piezoelectricity, but it's also uh, triboluminescence. Triboluminescence and piezoelectricity, and they are somewhat similar. Piezoelectricity means if you take a crystal and you put any pressure on it, it generates electricity. And that's important later. I think we'll have enough time to get to that later, how, how there's discharges into the air of energy. Uh, tribal luminescence is it's it's the grinding on the exterior uh, and it's releasing, fracturing uh, captured electrons. 
That's what it's doing. It's capturing electrons and photons. That's what's condensed into a crystal. And you release it by rubbing them together. So, Jeez, okay. you know what? That would be a great experiment for me to do with my students as we study earthquakes and fault lines. Imagine, imagine the whole San Andreas fault under all this pressure. What kind of energy release would be not only, you know, seismic energy, but what in the world kind of electrons would be released in the air when those things slip? But I think we're going to talk about that. Yeah, there are good films. The Japanese started doing films of earthquake lights back in the 1970s. Uh, and I've seen lots of the films and a lot of their photos. And I've that's that's somewhat what was happening in Missouri uh, during the Missouri UFO flap. Same thing going on at the Yakima Tribal Reservation in Washington State over a period. Well, it's still going on, but it was really intense right before Mount St. Helens exploded. Uh, I've spent time out there, a lot of time in Missouri investigating during all of it because my wife's family is from that area uh, and they were pretty well connected. So I could pretty much talk to anybody I wanted to. So anyway, uh, the the physical earth. Okay, so you have the two Native American stuff again, their beliefs. You have the two worlds, an upper world, a lower world. Creation, it's a harmonious type of energy. And then entropy that's trying to tear it all apart and send it back to its primordial state. Then creation uses it. And it's a cycle, big cycle. So in the middle is the Earth. The Earth represents, in this case, a three-dimensional double-sided mirror. Sounds bizarre, I know. But it's a three-dimensional double-sided mirror. It's three-dimensional because it's physical space. And it's a double-sided mirror because it's reflecting. The physical Earth reflects the upper power of creation, and it reflects the lower world power of entropy on it. And these two powers are constantly having an interplay on the surface of the Earth. In the midst of this, they said, this is Native American, and when I say Native American, I mean North American. We're not talking about South America or Central America. We're talking about North America. Native American belief was we are here and were sent here to maintain harmony and balance between these two forces. And that is what explains many things that people don't understand about Native American cultures, about the idea that you can't own land. You can occupy land, you can use land, but you can't own it. In fact, I can tell people this now. If you think you own land, you don't. You're renting it. You're renting it from the government. You try try to not pay that. They call them taxes. Try not to pay that those taxes and see what happens. We are all renting what we think we own, but we don't own any of it. So anyway, they also believed that you had to be harmonious with nature. So everything that they did was designed to be in harmony. One of the manifestations that occurs regularly as we live on this three-dimensional space here that is reflecting the upper world and the lower world, we are constantly interacting with these forces. And one of them is called a trickster. The trickster manifests itself, manifests itself in many different ways and forms. One very common one, you see a lot of trickster stories about coyotes, and you see trickster stories about wolves and trickster stories about spiders. And the trickster is not an evil entity. It's not evil. It's a spiritual entity. Remember, everything is spiritual. And a trickster is a test. A trickster will allow you to apply your own belief system, your own expectations, 
your own ideas onto it. It allows you to do that. And in doing that, you often think you're doing something right or correct or interpreting it correctly. And the trickster is perfectly happy with that because that's what it does. If you are able to get by the trickster, this this is the key thing in shamanism. All shamanism, according to Carl Jung, this is straight out of Jung's books. All shamanism is about navigating through the trickster, because that is always the first thing you encounter. You encounter the trickster. If you can get by the trickster, then you can get to real spiritual knowledge. So out here in the real world, according to Native Americans, these this force of entropy and creation that are constantly interplaying on in this physical world, it emerges, it takes different forms and shapes, and we interact with it. However, they developed the idea, goes back, we know the Siberian shaman who are still alive today do the exact same thing. This has been matched to what they do. They are tasked with the job of interacting with this force. And the reason they're tasked with that is because their their belief system tells them if they if they can interact with this force, they can maintain harmony and it gives them a good future. It's good for their crops. It's good for their health. Uh, it's good for everything because everything is spiritual and you're interacting with pure spiritual energy. But but for like health, you don't want to if you have a health issue, you don't want to contact entities that are with entropy. They're not going to help you. If you're going if you want health, you got to contact the ones that have creation to kind of renew things and uh and fix them up. So there are different kinds of shaman. Some shaman you can call it the dark side in in Star Wars. Some shaman will interact with the lower forces and there's almost always the exact same purpose there. And once they go that way, according to their literature, there's no way back. Once you start dealing with this dark side and you're going to it and you are trying to get its aid or assistance, you can't return. Uh, so, all right. So there's all this stuff occurring. And when they saw they saw little people identical to like alien grays. In fact, there are books by Native Americans that say point blank. What what people say are the alien grays are the wogi, their idea of the little people. They look just like them. There are loads of experiences of those in Native American literature. I told a story in the book about a, a true Native American shaman who came and stayed with my wife and I in the 1980s for 30 days. Uh, he brought the sacred arrows of the Cheyenne tribe with him, tried a device in my office, very bizarre experiences with the little people. Uh, but that's one of the manifestations of a trickster. The little people are the most powerful manifestation of the trickster, but if you can get by being fooled by them on the front end, you get to deeper spiritual knowledge. So that's the idea. But it's a force of it's spiritual energy that's being manifested. So you're saying they're kind of like a test and you have to um, get through their trickster self, I guess, or their personality. To well, learn. Partly. So remember, they use your it's your beliefs, your expectations that are interacting with it. That's but, the issue. But they can be helpful if. Absolutely. It's yes, sir. just they might lie to you during that time or might play games on you. Well, look at it this way. How many 
you're familiar with the contactee movement, right? Went on the 1950s where there's all Georgia Damsky was one, it loads of them. Uh, and they all claim there was a group, probably about 50 of them that were pretty well known in 60s and 50s, 60s and 70s. Uh, and what they claim were very similar stories. And that is they're in a remote place. It's always the same. They're in a remote place. Uh, flying saucer lands out back or around them. They're all alone. Of course, there's nobody else around. Uh, and they walk to it and somebody walks out. It's either a, Nor a tall Nordic woman and sometimes it's a Nordic man has long blonde hair. Uh, other times, it's a different kind of a creature. They say that they're from uh, Jupiter or Mars or Venus or Saturn. Uh, some have said they were from other planets, other other places. Clarion is an example, uh, you know, a, a hidden planet. Um, and then they say, you people are destroying yourselves. Um, they'll often give other information uh, to, to the individual, and then they fly off. Well, okay. So it, it, it was true that we were pretty close to destroying ourselves then, just as we are now. We're, we're pretty close to destroying ourselves now. But here's the problem. They said that they're from Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. And I will ask you, this is something that uh, I discussed in the book quite a lot. I used a manual. This is the example of Emanuel Swedenborg, who I consider the first contactee. Um, they're lied to. They don't live. These, whatever it is that's landing in the backyard and comes out and says, hey, we live on the, on the surface of Mars. We have a city on Mars. No, they don't. There is no city on the surface of Mars. I, I, I believe that. I believe that Jupiter does not have people living on the surface flying here. I don't I don't believe that. I don't believe there there's is anybody no there. surface on Jupiter. Well, there you go. I mean, so there, <laughs> there is deception. There's always deception in the front end. That is what I mean. It's always deception. And one of the things that occurs, I've watched people that are ghost hunters whatever that means uh, to you or anybody else. I'm not making fun of it, but I've seen them and it's their own fears and their own anxiety and their own expectations that create the mood that they say, say, you know, I'm feeling really nervous. And yeah, you're feeling really nervous because you're doing it to yourself. Right. That is what's happening. It's, it's, we do it to ourselves when we interact with this stuff. And right now I just call it this stuff. Uh, I call it time beings later in there. Andrew's going to call it N beings. I don't think you're to that yet. Little N mean we don't, it's a number. Little N is a number. We don't know the number uh, or what they are, but I call them time beings. So that's the aspect of the trickster. You have to get by that part of it. And very, very few people do. And it's, it is a manifestation of something that is not physical in the sense we think of. You the I can think of only a handful of examples where people said it's something physical that they touched. By far, most experiencers talk about a globe of light and beings within this globe of light. However, your experience with the triangle, that triangle thing, tells me several things. Uh, and I've said in there that the these energy formations that are made of plasma, different kinds of plasma, which is a natural earth energy. It's the number one substance in the entire universe. Um, it, it's what makes it up. It's everywhere. Uh, and the plasma and the electromagnetic energy spectrum are the keys to understanding this. And within that 
framework of plasma being the fourth state of matter, which I guess we can, you can probably explain it better than I can. But with it being the fourth state of matter, plasma, we know now, if it has enough energy that sustains it, it needs sustainability. And if it has enough substance, dust, dusty plasmas are a term that the British military used to explain genuine UFO sightings where they're picked up on radar. They called them a dusty plasma in the Condine report, C-O-N-D-I-G-N, for people going to look it up. That was released in 2006. Uh, And they also call them exotic plasmas. These things pull in molecules from the air. They pull in molecules of dust, anything they can, and they start ripping it apart, releasing both proton, not uh, releasing electrons and photons, creating light. And they can appear physical. They can take physical form and physical shape. That's astounding. When I went to college in in the late 60s and started in graduate school, what little physics I took back then, plasma was only mentioned as the fourth state of matter. And as I recall, the definition was it is a superheated ball of gas, which in fact doesn't sound like a fourth state of matter. It sounds like gas that's heated up, but it's a lot more than that. It is a whirling soup of energy and and uh, atoms and molecules that are torn apart, and they start releasing energy. So that is what a that is my quick definition of a plasma. We know that they emanate from the Earth. Uh, a group of physicists in 2007 issued an article in the Journal of Applied Physics, a peer-reviewed journal saying that plasmas have all the characteristics of living entities. They do everything we do. And if you think about it, the term plasma came from blood plasma and blood cells. They said the plasma looks a lot like a blood cell. That's how it got its name. It has an out, it has a shell around it. And actually it's an electromagnetic shell that kind of contains it. So our our cells have actually it's fat as they call it lipid, but they're fat molecules around all of our cells. That's what keeps them a cell. Uh, so plasmas have that within a plasma. In this 2006 article, they said they observed a double helix forming in the middle. So they got a, they've got a plasma to form in the laboratory, and they watched a double helix form in the center. And it began to rotate around, actually creating the spiral, just like human DNA does. And then they watched it inside the cell pull apart, just like DNA does when a cell replicates. And when a, when DNA pulls apart, RNA comes in, ribonucleic acid, and begins replicating it, and it duplicates. It creates two DNAs, and you have two cells now. That's how cells replicate themselves. Plasmas did the same thing in the laboratory. There's incredible film of this stuff, of plasma experiments done in space, actually. It's incredible how they form physical objects in a vacuum, in a freaking vacuum. They form physical objects that look like saucers. They move. They have extensions coming from them and light blowing out, you know, just beaming out of them all over the place. So they they can look physically real. Again, given if they have enough energy. So ball lightning is what a lot. Oh, you're just saying it's ball lightning. 
No, ball lightning is a type of natural plasma. It generally doesn't last long. I have seen it. I have seen lights form in the sky in the Bahamas in one of our many, many trips to the Bahamas doing investigations, underwater investigations. Uh, Another story. But um, plasmas are the key to this, and it's understanding plasmas. And when you first interact with them, that's when the trickster element lasts. So the last thing the physicists said, they said that they appear to have some form of interaction or intelligence. The same thing the head of the physics department at Southeastern Missouri State University said in his book in 1981 called Project Identification about all the the research they did in Missouri UFOs. He said they are plasmas that have intelligence and they interact with us. And they saw what looked like flying saucers with portals on the side I can't say that they ever, I don't remember a single uh, incident where they saw a triangular shaped UFO, but they saw what looks like um, like cigar shapes from the sides. And they saw regular fly, what looked like flying saucers. Uh, they saw a lot of balls of light and so on. The military flew in many times. Uh, I interacted a lot with the uh, adjutant general of Missouri National Guard, who told me point blank. We were there looking to see what the heck we were picking up on radar. We wanted to know what was going on. We didn't see anything. We couldn't find anything. Uh, So they were forming naturally there. Uh, There were lots of earthquakes in that area. There was a large earthquake that occurred at the end of all this research. And basically that shut down the Missouri UFO sightings for a long time. Uh, The new Madrid earthquake zone is there, of course, which is the... Very, very dangerous. And my wife is from New Madrid, Missouri. Uh, We've spent, well, loads and loads of, we've been married over 42 years. So yeah, we've been up there a lot. It's not far from Memphis. So that's kind of an intro to it. I went all over the place. So tell me where you want to (laughs) go. (laughs) From tricksters to plasma. So you're all over my list here because I got a a huge page. But yeah, that New Madrid zone, um, people can look into one of the worst earthquakes that ever happened in the United States is uh, that New Madrid zone in, in, you know, the good old central u.s and how many people actually died during that and uh, a lot of people don't think about earthquakes in the central u.s i live in memphis memphis is in the new madrid earthquake zone there are we have earthquake sirens there is a earthquake monitoring station here uh when the it it was i think it was 1812 when it occurred uh the big earthquake and the mississippi river flowed backward yes and created a giant lake in northwest tennessee right across from missouri uh it's called real foot lake great fishing lake uh but it formed this gigantic lake and that's why the the mississippi river flowed backwards filling that lake up uh but yeah massive earthquake uh i was working in a prison when a, when an earthquake happened back in the 70s, uh, but, well, it was in the very early 80s when um, when most of the, the sightings went off. And in this prison made out of this giant concrete, there was a ceiling fan above me, and it wasn't running because it was wintertime. And that ceiling fan, great big old hunter fan, just started swinging in the earthquake and also put a crack in our house at the time, which is another story. But I think that was a a 4.8 or something, which wasn't very big, but the new Madrid one was nine point something. Uh, very, yeah, very big earthquake. 
In so Michigan let, here, we don't we don't have any fault lines, but what we suffer from is isostatic rebound from, you know, thousands and thousands of years of uh, three mile thick ice sheet sitting on top of us that receded pretty quickly at the end of the last ice age and oh, created yeah. a, a basin, you know, so all the bedrock and everything is pushed down like a bowl. And then that's filled in with uh, sedimentary, you know, outwash from the the melting of the uh, glaciers. And so now that all that weight has been removed for the last 10,000 years, uh, it wants to come back up. Yeah. And so we get these little pops that happen, you know, they're like 2.0, 2.5s, something like that. And they're really quick. There's no aftershocks because it's not a fault line moving. It's just the, the balancing of the, this thenosphere that's underneath the crust, you know, kind of, pushing back against us and you know so we we get them a little bit but nothing nothing like new madrid man that's uh yeah, glad that's, i'm not yeah. down that way well <laughs> it's that's a pretty flat area too it's all farming no yeah. but some of the best farmland in the country well right. earth is a dynamic system i mean yes. that's that's what you know you have to kind of walk away from so before we move on to some other questions you had made a quick mention of uh, i believe you call him the first documented anyways alien abductee and i think his last name is is it swedenborg swedenborg emmanuel swedenborg Swedenborg. yeah yeah could you and this plays back to that trister twister twister it's all right (laughs) trickster idea uh can you kind of tell us a little bit about what went on with him and the in the trickster element he was dealing with absolutely uh and and the more i think about it twister might actually be a good name for a trickster because that's what they do they are twisting things around if you yeah. can rotate them enough you go from the bad to the good all right so emmanuel sweden i just want to i want to add one thing before yep. you jump in this is i hope everybody that's listening pays close attention to this because we hear about this in modern ufology and certain abductees this day. And I don't think anybody really even knows outside of maybe you, I've never heard anybody in all the research I've been doing in the last two, three years on this topic, anybody talk about Swedenborg. Yeah, and, okay. and so I really want people to like, listen to what happened to this, this guy and see if this, kind of fits with what we hear from other people in the community well emmanuel swedenborg was the most famous scientist in his day in the world he was world renowned he'd written all kinds of textbooks in physics geology anatomy uh he did engineering work he was of swedish royalty he is buried in the in a massive cathedral in Uppsala, sweden where, by the way, there's like 250 what look like Indian mounds in Uppsala, uh, where all of the Vikings uh, were were buried. So anyway, Swedenborg is buried there. Very important figure. Uh, he was offered uh, teaching positions at the University of Uppsala when he was alive. He turned them down because he didn't like making speeches. But he was a representative of his government, an ambassador. The government sent him around to different places. And it was in, here we go with the date, it was in 1743, 1743, Swedenborg went to England 
Now, I did a lot of uh, background research in him, and I only had so many words that I could put in that book, in the book we're discussing, Origins of the Gods, and I probably cut out half of the material in there, because there's a lot of stuff that I talked about in there, like everything from the Navy's research uh, on plasma stuff to a lot more background in Swedenborg. But Swedenborg was in a state where he was questioning his own behavior. He wasn't married. He liked the ladies. Uh, He traveled alone. He didn't want fanfare. He was famous. Everybody knew who he was, Uh, but he traveled alone. He didn't like fanfare, but everywhere he went, it's like he had a lady in every port. Um, So, and he was, he was, he was a Christian. So that bothered him quite a bit. So he was in a real spiritual crisis at the time. So 1743, he is at a tavern in London. And when I say tavern, people think, you know, you're doing nothing but drinking beer. No, that was their restaurant of the day. Uh, They had a separate private room for him to sit in and eat. He was sitting there and eating. And then all of a sudden, on the other side of the room, uh, it was a small room, but across his table against the wall, a man appeared sitting at a table or just a chair, sitting on a, a chair. The man appeared. And Swedenborg looked at him and it was astonished because the man just appeared from nowhere. And the man looked at him. This is as inauspicious as it gets. The man said, don't eat too much. That was the beginning. It terrified Swedenborg for some reason. I mean, he wrote about this in his journal uh, that, and he, in a lot of books he wrote about this. But it terrified him. The man just appeared from nowhere, violated his known laws of physics, which that's partly what he was, a physicist. So he ran back to his hotel room. There's a lot written about that night in several books, uh, but his journal doesn't mention it. In the books, it says that there was some sort of disturbance in his room because Swedenborg was an official of the Swedish government. The uh, British government sent some police there. They interviewed him. They sent a doctor to see what was going on. They sedated him. This is all in their record. He was sedated. A policeman sat out of his room the rest of the night. The next night, Swedenborg was in his room, and here's what he wrote, that he was in his room laying down to go to sleep, and all of a sudden, a big ball of light appeared in his room, a big ball of light, and this man was there. The man came out. Uh, the light disappeared behind him. The man sat in a chair and he said the man looked just like anybody else, except he had these big old purple robes on, purple robes. And the man sat down and said, I am going to open your mind. And that began a 28-year interaction that Swedenborg had with these physical beings There were many of them. This one was the one who started it. There were a lot of these physical entities. They took walks with him through cities. They traveled with him. And they took him for rides in what can only be described as spaceships to their home planets, which included Saturn, and they went, they took Swedenborg to Saturn where he looked down and they showed Swedenborg all their cities on the surface of Saturn. And he went to the moons of Jupiter and he saw them living on the moons of Jupiter, all the cities and Mars and Venus. And they told him that they were aliens, 
They visited Earth for a long, long time, and of the old, in the old days, they came here, and they taught us a lot of information. That is what they told Swedenborg, and that they were aliens, but they looked just like us. He did that for 28 years, wrote a whole bunch of books about it, and he swore in those books. He said, I'm, I am not a drinker. I don't. He didn't do drugs. He didn't drink. He said, I am with them in full awakening consciousness. I have shook hands with them. I have hugged them. I have traveled with them. They are physically real entities. Some of his books, you can still buy, you know, you can buy reprints of them. Earth's in the universe is one. And he said the universe is populated with solar systems that have Earth's just like this one and beings just like us. They're all over the universe. That is what he said. I mean, there are, we are discovering exoplanets and and Earth-like planets out there. Absolutely. Now, we don't know about the life thing, but, I mean, this is back in the 1700s, right? Yes. You saying this? Yes, so 1743 is when he had this experience. Now, here's the thing. Are there, pl- are there, if you flew around Saturn and got through the atmosphere or Jupiter or Mars or Venus, are you going to see cities all over those planets on the surface? He said there's cities just like they had in the 1700s. No, they lied. Almost every contactee experience Almost everything on the front end is deceptive. It is deceiving us. That is the trickster aspect here. So, okay, was Swedenborg hallucinating? I don't think so. I honestly don't think so. I think Swedenborg interacted with the same thing that Native American shaman interact with when they deliberately do like the Massam ritual, which is one that literally calls up these entities for a period of time. And they build an enclosure to bring them in because they don't want to release them or let them go away. Uh, But I don't believe that Swedenborg was hallucinating all of this. I don't, I believe some of the contactees from the 40s, 50s and 60s were telling the truth as they experienced it, just like I believe a lot of abductees are. Uh, I'm speaking to Whitley Strieber tomorrow. Uh, I've known Whitley for many years. Whitley had an experience that lasted for years and years. And over time, Whitley has changed his ideas about what these entities are. I don't know. Are are you familiar with, um, oh, gosh, it's it's another abductee, a very famous case. Uh, and in hers, these little people just walked through the walls uh, and came into the room uh, and interacted with her. Uh, initially she thought they were from other planets and so on, but she changed her mind too. Uh, and I knew her pretty well. And for just for the light, I know her, her husband's a Facebook friend, but she died a few years ago and I'm just having a block. Can't remember her name. Now it'll pop into my mind, uh, in a minute, but very, very famous abductee. Well, that's why, I, I mean, I've, I've heard of these kind of stories and, you know, people being levitated right out of their room and, you know, taking on these craft. And uh, we had a couple of MUFON people here on our podcast, and um, they talked about medical procedures that healed them, scars that they have, you know, implants, things like this that that they've experienced. And it, it all sounds the same. That's that's why I was really interested in, in uh, 
this section on Swedenborg because yeah. or Swedenborg because man, it it seventeen hundreds, you know. Well, you just don't think of. And if it been a if it if it hadn't been somebody famous, we wouldn't know about it. It's the same thing with Joan of Arc's experiences. I mentioned her in the book, and Joan of Arc is an astonishing story. But if she hadn't done what she did, we'd never know it. We'd never. I mean, when I say that, I mean she saved France, uh, and then she was burned at the stake uh, for doing it. Uh, but Joan of Arc is another example of interacting with whatever this force is. Uh, and I included her in there because when she did what they, it was a spiritual thing. She knew it was a spiritual thing. And the initial interaction told her it was a spiritual thing. And it's kind of like this, the force of creation came down and there was no trickster element involved in it with Joan of Arc. However, over time, Joan's motives changed. I don't know how much you know about her, but Joan of Arc, after she saved France and did what her voices, which were actual entities that some other people reportedly saw, um, after she did what they told her to do, she didn't stop. She did more. And that is where the trickster element entered uh, in, in her case. Uh, I used Edgar Casey as an example. Edgar Casey had two experiences with entities. Uh, he called them angels, just like Joan of Arc called them angels. Uh, and Edgar Casey, in in these in in those cases, was basically told to be a healer, to heal people and help children. And that's what he started out doing. And he did his health readings. He did loads of health readings. And then he got into a lot of other areas. People ask him about, where's gold? I want gold. Where is it hidden? Where can I drill for oil? And that violated, all of those things violated what the initial basic agreement was with the spiritual entities that he interacted with. And those are the areas where, I mean, I'm a big person in the Casey organization. My wife was uh, chairperson of the board of trustees for many years. Uh, and we we headed the ARE search for Atlantis, but but Casey was wrong about some things, and all the things that he was wrong about have to do with money, gold, oil, lost treasure, uh, and some things in history. Uh, there are some very specific things in history. In fact, we wrote a book where we literally listed here were the things that Edgar Casey was wrong about, but he interacted with that same force. Hey everyone, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors and some friends of the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, my name is Burton, and I am the host of Follow the Reaper podcast where every episode we examine first and secondhand true paranormal encounters. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. 
Hi, everyone. This is Jared Murphy of NotAliens.com, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle from Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hey there, it's Richard Serrett, occasional weekend guest host of Coast to Coast AM and host of The Conspiracy Show. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle's Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. What's up, everyone? This is Burton. And Aaron from Lost in the Dark Podcast. And raise your horns because you're listening to Wayne and Michelle from Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. What is up, you guys? It's your girl, Gemma Jade, from Gemma Jade YouTube, Moon Bear Oracle, Paranormal Chop Shop. You're here listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hi, this is Chris Lato of the Chris Lato YouTube channel, retired F-16 pilot turned UAP investigator, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi, this is Terry Lane Keel, director of MUFON memberships, investigator, demonologist, and author of Alien Healing, the true story of a benevolent extraterrestrial. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hello everyone, this is Michael Schrett, military aerospace historian and private pilot, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast, and we're glad to have you with us today. Hi, this is Seth Talk from MUFON and the author of You Have the Right to Talk to Aliens and the host of Alien Spirit TV with Sev on YouTube. You're listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. I want to ask you about Crowley. I believe one of his, I don't know if he interacted with him. I haven't done enough research on it. He did. Parsons as well yeah from jack the, parsons yeah jack parsons jpl yep and you know i had nathaniel gillis on the podcast um last episode and he looks at things through a religious a religious demonology lens and sees these entities as something from the afterlife that are their end goal is is like soul reading, having it out for us. 
So I wanted to ask you, as one of the, one of the people I wanted to ask you about with Crowley and, and Parsons, what did you discover anything about them in your research? Well, as I told you, gosh, I wrote my first book. It's called The Archetype Experience. This is it. Came out in 84. And I talked a lot about Aliester Crowley in that book uh, and some of his things that he did. Um, and he worked with Jack Parsons. Supposedly, they opened a portal. Uh, and that's what let let the UFOs through. That's one of the the ideas that people throw out there. Yeah, and didn't uh, they use the name like Lamb or something like that? And it looks very similar to like the little people or the Greys, like you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I actually have. Uh, take me a minute to find it. Uh, do you have the Book of Lies? I do not. It's called mm-hmm. the Book of Lies. It's a book by Crowley. It's written in a cipher, but I have. Uh, an uncipher i had the i had, cipher was solved i'll put it that way um anyway yes those ritual there are rituals native americans did rituals i tend to stick with them um uh, i uh don't really like talking about what i would call black magic uh and native americans are were very very cautious about dealing with any shaman or medicine people who dealt in that dark side, it was almost, uh, it's about control and it's controlling things that you shouldn't control. That's what that dark side is about. Often it's about getting something for someone from someone or for someone, which it means you got to take it away, getting somebody to get hurt, to die, to get sick. Uh, that's what most of that dark side stuff is about. It's, but it's trying to control and hurt other people. That's the process of it. So I try to stay away from that. I try to stick with the rituals that are done to harmonize with uh, these these forces, which is what the Native Americans did. Crowley was into using it. Now, he was a lot. There's a lot of sex involved in uh, his form of it. Uh, The Book of Lies, some of it lies. It's it's a double entendre. Uh, It means different sex positions, and it means lying, literally lying, uh, telling untruths. That's what it's about. But being the knowledge is hidden within this. Uh, So that's what that book is is about. But within that are a lot of rituals. And I know most of the rituals haven't done them, have no intention to, uh, because I don't I don't care to interact with it. However, lots of people do believe that we are dealing with, you know, souls. Which are spiritual entities, I guess, but uh, the question is, is whatever the essence of me is, my soul or the essence of my spiritual being, does that exist intact after I go or does it just dissipate? And in the book, I use all the, the phrase over and over, all things are connected, which is a Native American term. It's, you'll actually find it on some uh, placards as you enter some big Native American sites in Georgia. That's what's on their signs as you go in. All things are connected, uh, and that's the that's this idea of this singularity, and that we're all made from the same thing. And it's the web. There is a web. It is an electromagnetic web that connects everything. They act. The Native Americans actually discuss this web uh, with the ter- with the idea of a spider. Uh, and it is that a spider's web is is very interesting. 
if you grab any part of a spider's web and do anything to it, the whole thing will vibrate. And that was their conception of everything in the universe. Whatever it is you're doing, you're vibrating a little piece of that web and its effects are going everywhere. And that's where the quantum mechanics and quantum physics that Andrew talks about in the latter half of the book come from, that idea. But the Native American idea is that it's a web. So I'm, I am familiar with Crowley, very familiar, and what he supposedly did with Jack Parsons in opening a portal that was never closed. Uh, do I believe it? Uh, you know, they, they did stuff. Uh, there's no doubt they did rituals. Uh, some of the people involved in Scientology were involved with the rituals uh, initially. Uh, I know that now. I didn't know that until a few, well, not that long ago, a few years and apparently um, there was people in the government, this Collins elite. I don't know if you've. Yeah, I'm very, I wrote an article about the Collins elite back when uh, the first information came out about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they believe that there is a, well, it's really a spiritual force. Uh, it's not aliens in the sense of the, you know, the extraterrestrial people or ET believers, the nuts and bolts people. It's not that it's not what they believe. This is something different. It is some sort of a, energetic thing so the they they take a different view of it though i try to i take the native american view which is about harmonizing with it it's always been here we interact with it all the time we just don't know we're interacting with it and sometimes it appears spontaneously to people usually it has to do with your mental state usually it has to do with uh, like when you're walking in the woods, if you're if if somebody put an electroencephalograph on your head and measured your brainwave activity, and if you got right on the cusp of <clears throat> theta waves from beta to theta, right on the cusp of it, that's what's called the Schumann resonance, and it's the Earth's ambient electromagnetic field. But when you hit that exact level of um, resonance with the Schumann resonance. You're kind of mentally open to experiencing this thing. You don't have to be mentally open to experience it, but you're mentally open at that point. And Native Americans rituals, that's what they did. So they created a special space where they could confine and control these forces. They literally grounded themselves in dirt. Remember, dirt is, is the most primordial substance of uh, spiritual matter that exists. It's very primordial. So they would grind, ground themselves almost in, like an electrical ground into the dirt. That's why kivas went into the ground. It's why a lot of the sacred spaces, even the mound builders built were pits and they put walls of earth around them. Sometimes they were solid circle walls with a flat space in the middle. The exterior walls were linear lines. Well, they're not linear then, but they are. Well, they are linear lines, not just not straight, creating a circular formation. They could be 16 to 20 feet high around the outside. They would have to crawl over and go down in and do their rituals in there. And the purpose is to not allow the spiritual entities that manifest because you almost always get a trickster first. No matter what, you, you have to pass the test. You almost always get a trickster first. They had to confine it into a space. That is why they built those types of earthworks. And there's a lot, there's some of those in Michigan. There's some, there's loads of them in Ohio. They're all over the country. Uh, so they, they interacted with it deliberately 
And but they weren't trying they were trying to harmonize with it. They weren't trying to manipulate it like right. like black magic does. Uh, and so I don't even like I think it's a mistake for people to get into that. I'm not going to take a religious view on it. I just think it's a mistake to wish ill will on other people to get something. I just I just think that's wrong. Yeah, uh, I think hate of all kinds is wrong. But obviously, it doesn't seem that other people believe that anymore. Very few people do, it seems. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things that you've said here that, again, when when you listen to them talk about the the spiritual energies in a rock and in, in, in this kind of it, it it sounds like physics because yeah. everything they'll tell you everything is is energy right rocks have energy it's just moving very slow it's in a solid state but yep. you know we come up with these scientific words and, and and like i was saying with earth system science and you were talking about the web it's like Okay, we put all these fancy words and terms on our quote unquote alchemy, but the Native Americans were talking about this in the metaphor of a of a web where, okay, if we mess with the biosphere, that's going to affect the atmosphere because, you know, and then the atmosphere is going to affect the biosphere and the hydrosphere and you create these cycles and, you know, we call them positive feedback loops, not that they're a positive thing that's happening, but that they're going to keep increasing as, as this effect continues to happen. And it's just fascinating to me that the native people had these ideas because we're used to the kids stories, right. Of their, their creation and what was kind of put out there, but then Holy crap, they were talking about singularity. Yeah. Well, think think about all the other things that that they talked about, about you, you don't own the land, you occupy it, you honor it, you don't kill animals just to kill them. Uh, if you need food, fine. But they always prayed over an animal. When they killed an animal, they prayed it. They thanked it for giving its life for to give them sustenance. They did the same thing with plants. They were very good stewards of forests and plants. They did controlled burning. They were experts at it. And again, we're talking about Native Americans up here, and they deliberately lived in harmony with all of this. And that's also why they didn't build permanent structures. People have talked to me and said, oh, they were stupid. They never built stone houses. Well, no, because they didn't own the land. They occupied it. They used the resources in harmony. And when they needed to move on, they did. And a few years later, they'd cycle back and do the same thing. They moved around. They didn't believe that they owned any of it, that they were inhabiting it. That is it. And they had to live in harmony with it. So let's, uh, I don't know how much time you've got left, but let me talk about the time thing and the plasma. The, all right. So these plasmas are being generated. You know that you could explain it well, I'm sure, but natural plasmas are generated by earth energy, either piezoelectricity or it's triboluminescence. Uh, you've got earthquake fault lines. They have tectonic strain where two sides are just pushing. It's not the release of that. It's not the actual earthquake that causes it, although generally there is some manifestation then. But that releases the pressure, and then that pretty much stops UFO flaps. So it is the it is the building and the constant pressure of two sides pushing on each other. And crystalline rock structure... Uh, granite has crystalline rock. Granite generates a lot of electricity. You have water moving down through cracks. That does more 
And I, I know I'm talking about it's not all electricity, but that's the the term I'm using because most people it'd be they'd be clueless about the rest. And truthfully, I'm clueless about the rest. I can say the words, but I don't really have the same understanding. Yeah, and I'm not a physics guy, so <laughs> yeah. So anyway, okay. So these plasmas emerge, and I call and they they form this electromagnetic shell around them. And they can take on all different shapes. They can take on the shape of a saucer. They begin to rotate, which is weird, but it's an electro, it's a, it is an object. It's not dense. Like we are actually, we're in an ocean right now. People don't realize this. Oh, well, there's nothing here. What could it, yeah, well, it uses air molecules. There's air, there's oxygen, nitrogen, uh, lots of other, you know, smaller amounts of gases here, but it takes them, starts ripping them apart. And as it rips them apart, it gets superheated. It creates the electromagnetic field around it, has a shell form. And if it's pulling in more energy, if it has enough energy, it can get bigger and bigger. It can take on any shape. The Navy has figured out how to create them in the air, how to create three-dimensional ones. The Navy is able to send messages miles through an electromagnetic beam, which is light. It's like a laser, but it's not a la- it's not a visible laser. People think a laser always has visible light coming out. No, it doesn't. Uh, The electromagnetic energy spectrum, visible light's about 4.7%, a little under 5%, right in the middle. That's all we see of it. But you've got an enormous range going to very, very low waves on other end, radio waves on one end, all the way to cosmic rays on the other. Uh, So there's ultraviolet and infrared. uh, And all we can see with our eyes is the visible light. We can't see ultraviolet. We can't see infrared. And the reason is, people, and this is, this is the key to understanding it, we are antenna. We're biological antenna. We literally are. And our eyes, in the back of your eye, there's a retina. That retina has millions of cells that are exposed in the back, tiny little cells. Those cells are antenna. Exactly like the antenna on a radio. You know, an old radio you get and you pull the antenna up and you tune it. That The tuning on that radio, usually with a crystal, is tuning that antenna to pick up frequencies in the electromagnetic energy spectrum, but only in a very, very narrow band. And different stations would broadcast on different bands. The exact same thing is happening in the back of our eyes These antenna, which are called rods and cones, the cones pick up color, the rods pick up black and white, but they're not tuned to pick up infrared. Owls, the the rods and cones in an owl's eye in its retina are tuned to pick up infrared. So an owl can sit up in a tree and look down at night and see the heat signature of a rodent running across a field. And that's that's what uh, ultraviolet is. It, or sorry, infrared is. It's, it's the heat signature. So it's all about tuning. Our eyes are literally antenna. They pick up the signals they cross through the optic nerve to the back of the brain, and that's where you're seeing things in, uh, in, the, in the very back of the brain, visual cortex. Long story, doesn't matter. Anyway. We're antenna. So the idea also is that we were born and we evolved in the Schumann resonance. The Earth has a natural frequency on the electromagnetic energy spectrum. 
And that natural frequency uh, is seen in the theta waves. Again, we have that frequency when we're right on the cusp of moving into theta waves, which is like meditation. So I've, I've had many times where I take long walks. I could be walking through the forest or by water or whatever. And I can tell something happens now and then. I get really lost in something. I don't know what it is. And then all of a sudden, it's like, darn, you know, I, I was gone for a bit. That's right. That's the cusp of being awake, beta waves and so on, and hitting theta. So that's where these things, that's where you tune to them. So you have these plasmas forming, taking different shapes. Now, we call the manifestations of these that are related to abductions, some UFO reports, I call them time beings, spelled T-I-I-M-E. Transient intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. They're transient because they never last. You never hear of a case of people going, hey, come on over, a flying saucer land, let's go, you know, bang on the side and all that. No, it doesn't last very long. It's an intrusion. It's definitely intruding into our reality. People have seen these things form. They have seen them actually kind of coalesce into into a physical form and then interact with them. So it's an intrusion in our reality. So transient intrusion of intelligent. They're intelligent because they're sentient. They have a purpose. In the olden days, biblical days, they called them angels. And the whole idea of an angel is it's a messenger. That's all an angel was. It's a messenger. Sometimes it delivers a message by saying something. Other times it delivers a message from God by saying, okay, Sodom and Gomorrah, boom, you're gone. Uh, so there, that's that's a messenger. So that's what some people saw back then. They have been seen as the little people, elves, fairies, the Muslim jinn, uh, the Native American little people and the wogi. So these things appear they're intelligent. They interact with us. Same thing the physicists told us about them. And they're manifesting energy. They are very clearly energy that's being manifested into our physical reality. When they manifest, when we get close to them, this electromagnetic bubble is big. And if you're in that bubble, you're in an interaction sphere. And in that interaction sphere, there is something going on between what we have up here, our ideas, our beliefs, our culture, and our cultural expectations. It's like, what would you expect an alien to look like? If you ask that of almost all UFO people, they're going to be able to tell you what they think they look like. It might be a gray, in some cases a reptoid you know, some people think they look just like us, others, you know, insects, I don't know, but people have an idea. But that's in their interaction with us, they are conforming a lot of their appearance and behavior to the needs and expectations of whoever it is they're interacting with. It is an interaction sphere. At that point, that's where Andrew kind of takes over. That's what's in his last chapters. And, and so the idea is this. Here's the question. Is the plasma itself an entity? Is it a living entity? Or is it simply the form that allows an intelligence to enter? Such like as a vessel. Yeah, exactly. That, like, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. People say that about us. You know, I have this yeah. physical form. Well, 
is this physical form really all that I am? Or is there a soul? Did some energy, soul, some being or whatever entered this physical body? And the Native Americans said, yes. The Native Americans said, we ha- our physical body has life because it's spiritual energy. It's made of primordial spiritual energy. But our soul is a free soul and it enters. They called the physical soul the life soul because it animated the body. And then at the moment of birth, or shortly before birth, they said the free soul makes a, a travel across the sky. And we know we know the travel. It goes from Cygnus or the North Pole Star down the Milky Way and then goes to Orion. It's actually Orion's nebula, which is Messier 42, and then leaps down and then it comes and inhabits a soul. And then we reverse the trip when you die. That's the way it works with them and, and their belief system. So with us... I think that whatever we're describing with a plasma, just like our blood, you know, it's a shape and it's a form, but there's something else to it. Uh, So that's the thing. Andrew believes this interaction sphere opens some sort of portal that is interdimensional. So he goes into a great deal of detail in that. And that's way boom. That's beyond me. As I bam, my head explodes. Uh, I don't, I don't invoke the, I don't say we have to invoke the interdimensional stuff, but it's interesting. And he has absolutely brilliant explanations of this in quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Uh, And he goes through what physicists have said about it and how they have explained it too. I would think that if these plasma spheres and and vessels or whatever have such so much energy in, in the electromagnetic spectrum, they might be warping time space exactly you know, what he in, says in allowing these intelligences then to come in and use that for it's very interesting man i just i haven't gotten there in the book yet yeah well let me give you one more piece to this 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 relates to the trickster aspect all right so almost everybody when they first interact with this thing has a negative or scary or disturbing experience. Whitley Strieber is a good example. Whitley, I don't know how much, do you know much about Whitley's experience? I know he did communion. Yeah. Yeah, he did it. Okay. So on that front end, in this interaction sphere, Mm -hmm. in the interaction sphere, remember, it is retrieving information from you. And I believe it's doing it through, you know, we create an electromagnetic field around our body. We did. We create an electrical field, electromagnetic field. That physicists will tell you and medicine tells you, oh, it's not very strong, but uh, it can be felt probably throughout the entire universe. If you had a good enough, sensitive enough equipment, you could you could feel it. But I think that's how the interaction occurs, that it is literally merging or melding with our electromagnetic field and it is pulling information. So initially, when it does this, most people are going to be afraid, excited. And almost everybody, uh, the extraterrestrial nuts and bolts hypothesis is the most popular one. Uh, There's no doubt about it. And it has been from the beginning. The idea I'm spouting is not the least popular, but it's the next to least popular possible because it's telling you this stuff isn't extraterrestrial in the sense that you think it is. It is alien in a way, but it's not what you think. It's something far, far more profound. But it's reading what you, what you, um, what you are thinking and what you believe 
and then it is acting in accordance with that. That is the trickster. And that is what you have to get by to see what it really is. That to me is the mud. So what you're seeing at first is a manifestation of something that you're not seeing what it really is. The Zuni to this day perform a ritual about that. They wear a mask and it's called a clown mask, but it's not a clown in the sense of what we think of as a clown. And it has to do with spiritual entities that we interact with, but you cannot see their true form. You're not allowed to see what they are. So they always wear a mask. And in Andrew's part of the book, he talks about this aspect. And it's like, a, I'll ask a question. What did Moses see when he went to Mount Sinai? He saw a, a, a burning bush that never right. burned. It was mm-hmm. a light. All right. And what was it? Well, uh, lots of other experiences from the Bible where they interact with this. Andrew also talks about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Andrew has been searching for that for many, many years, talked to many people involved with it, and he has ideas that others have not had. Um, But so with the interaction then to get like the Ten Commandments and how to live with you know your people and and have these rules to follow would that come from like a creation entity then yes yep so living so in the, harmony okay Think so what the, the ten commandments do they keep us in harmony i'm not murdering people i'm not stealing right. their stuff i'm not having sex with everybody you know and hiding it and all that but the burning bush would be the trickster element to get through to that creation i think the burning bush is this is a is the spiritual manifestation uh, sometimes, like I said, these will appear in their real form. Usually it appears as a trickster. But I have what I what I would say is that Moses, whatever it conformed its appearance to, at that time, Moses walked up that mountain and went there. He was in a pretty spiritual state and he was seeking something spiritual. That's what that was all about. So again, it was reading. He was in an interaction sphere with it and it was picking up what was going on inside of him at the time. And it acted in accordance. But with most of us, all the time, we're always stressed out. We're always got something to do. We always got something we want. We're always trying to get more. We're always trying to fix things. We're all we're worried about so many things happening all the time. You got COVID, you got a war going on, you got more wars possible, could start any minute. You know, people are worried that I'll turn on my TV in one minute and see, oh my God, they just attacked Taiwan. Or, you know, Russia just used the nuke and all that. Everybody's right. worried about that. Recessions, they, gas prices. Exactly. I mean, keep going. But I mean, go back and it's been like that for 30, 40, 50 years. It's been like that. So <laughs> yeah. most people are primed to interact with a trickster. Almost everybody's try, primed to interact with a trickster. And what I've said shows where they've asked me about, how can you really interact with this? What I tell them is, first of all, you've got to get out, go to a sacred site. I use Hoven Weep in the book as an example. There are some in Michigan. You have to get in the mountains to do this. But Hoven Weep is way down in a canyon. There's no cell phone service. You want to make sure there's no cell phone service. You don't want to have any electrical equipment on at all while you're there make sure the cell phones are off. And actually, 
put those in the car because even when they're off, they're creating signals. I uh, think most people know that, but just don't take any electronic equipment. You can take you can take flashlights if you need them, uh, but understand when you turn them on, they are going to create a little electrical field around them. But anyway, you go there, find a spot where you're in the ground. And when I say that, ground yourself. You can make a stone circle. You can find one that's already made. Don't don't put your feet on grass. Put it on the physical ground, on dirt. That's how you do it. Get into a meditative state of some kind. And don't you don't have to think. Just don't worry. Meditation is about thinking about nothing. I've never been able to do that, to my knowledge. I, I was I've never say, been able to think about nothing. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's possible in modern man right now. But what what we can do, what they did through ritual they did rituals that did this, which is the repetitive banging of drums. One of the things that they did was dance to exhaustion. They would do a type of dance. I actually like doing I got pretty good at doing it. And they became exhausted. And when you're exhausted, what's in your head? Sleep. You're not really think. you're not thinking about much. You, yeah. You're not, you know, you're not thinking about, I wonder how the stock market's doing today. You know, I bought yeah. this stock and I wonder what it did. I need to check, you know, get on, a, get on my cell phone and check that. Uh, -uh. When you're exhausted and you're dancing and you say, I'm just going to keep doing this, your thoughts eventually start dissipating and your mind really does get clear. You're physically exhausted, but it clears your mind. I was just going to say, uh, athletes are known to get into this. Martial artists are known to get into that mindset of, where you can actually, it seems like time slows down. Your, your mind yeah. is so relaxed yet focused on one, one thing. And yeah, that's, that's you know, I'm thinking that these, these rituals and, and the beating of the drum, the meditate, it, it's all the same. It's all the same thing with a different flavor added to it. Yeah. Different methods to achieve the same thing. Yeah. And they used what they had. And they so they used these high-pitched uh, whistles uh, that I have sets of the whistles. I have a friend who actually goes around and gives uh, demonstrations of using these whistles. So let me tell you, use these things. It does stuff to your head. You're not going to be able to think about a lot of other things. But, yeah, it's clearing your mind. Wow. Total focus maybe on one thing, which in some cases it's just to keep moving, keep dancing, uh, or keep beating the drum. And that is what they did. It's not using drugs necessarily. Lots of people want to use drugs and do this. I don't recommend it. I am not uh, a proponent of using any drugs. Uh, but I won't tell you that 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 nobody uses them. And when people say, what should I do? Uh, I will tell them things so they don't do anything stupid or bad, yeah. because you can do some pretty stupid things quickly and not even know it's stupid. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah studying of DMT and ayahuasca and stuff like that right now seems to be the popular thing in sensory deprivation tanks and, and things like that. And I, I don't know if I know I wouldn't personally do it, but I don't know well, if that's the right way to go. I think you can achieve these states in different ways. Well, you can't, you can't achieve them. We had sensory sensory deprivation tank in the labs. I didn't mention that back in the seventies. Uh, we had, DMT sent to us from the federal government. Um, and then I actually synthesized some and I've used DMT many times. I never used ayahuasca, uh, but I used uh, synthetic DMT uh, and lots of others. I don't recommend people do that. Uh, 
But if that's the only way that they can uh, attach to something more spiritual, and if it creates a great experience for them, which is what a lot of people say, if they're prepared correctly, whatever that means, I wouldn't try it. Uh, I consider that almost unethical. And that's why they're doing a lot of it in South America. Right. You don't see that going on here in the States, because I don't think that would be considered legal or ethical. Uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, so, yeah, these so the plasmas are the the true UFO, the true entities that that are being seen. There are other things going on. The plasmas are also related to uh, ghost hunting and the legitimate stuff there. I believe it's not in the book, but I believe. Bigfoot is a manifestation of the same thing. Hate to say it because I know a lot of people are convinced it's real. Uh, I'm good friends with Lauren Coleman. There's a lot of people that will sit there and say that they think it's a a transdimensional being. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they might be following it or they see f- footprints and it's running and then one footprint and then it's gone. Yeah. And yeah. this kind of can answer that cryptid side of things about how these things are able to disappear like that. Well, the, the energy conduit is kind of closed at that point. So the, the intelligence has moved on. So what I I guess that I don't know again, how much time you got, but the last thing I really want to talk about is all right. So what really has convinced me over the years that this is the solution to this gigantic jigsaw puzzle of UFOs, paranormal, and everything else. Mothman would fit in there, the Mothman episode, John Keel's work. What really has convinced me relates to research. And it's research that's been published in both uh, governmental journals, which are hard to find. You have to go to a government repository library and physically pull those out. They're not online. Uh, they're not available, and, and it has to be a government repository library, and that's a special area in some university libraries. And that's where I first discovered this research back in, I think it was 1991 or so, when I first I went, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. Military journals, lots and lots of military journals. And I came to understand then quickly that they were doing a lot of research on plasmas. Uh, in fact, in this book, 1984, I said in it, I strongly suspect that plasmas are the true source of uh, genuine UFOs and entities way back then. So it, I just, you know, it's been a while. But anyway, the research in Canada by a neuropsychologist named Michael Persinger started in the early 70s. Uh, and I knew Persinger. He died a few years ago. And I actually published research in the same journals as he did on the same topic, supporting uh, Persinger's research. But Persinger was able to reliably create abduction experiences to undergraduate psychology students sitting in reclining chairs in a laboratory setting in a Faraday cage. Persinger was able to create UFO sightings in there for people to see that, for people to interact with angels. Some said they interacted with God. His research reached the point before he died, it reached the point to where Persinger was able to to, uh, put words in people's heads, speak sentences in their heads by the application of electromagnetic fields. That's it. He was using electromagnetic fields, not spoken words, but they would hear 
the words spoken in their head. They would hear it there. He created another type of electromagnetic beam where there would be these students in the laboratory that were making choices. They, they would be sitting there and they would be presented with choices. And Persinger was controlling their choices electromagnetically. That whether they would choose, you know, A, B, or C, he was able to control the choice by changing the frequency of the electromagnetic field. Uh, it came out, his place, Laurentian University, was actually picketed by a group of fundamentalist Christians because he had developed what the newspapers called the God Helmet, to where you could put this helmet on and go in this room and meet God and interact with angels and all that. But you didn't have to, you didn't have to wear the helmet to do all this. Now, here's where it gets interesting. For years, I speculated and didn't earlier books. I wrote books in this in 1990 and 94 also. Persinger, I believe, was funded by the uh, U.S. military for his research. The U.S. Navy has a device. Uh, it is a laser, but you can't see the beam. It's not a dangerous laser, uh, but it can beam for miles. And what it does is it puts spoken words in your head. It can put sentences into your head. You will hear words being said. Actual they have mind control, others. man. And, well, it, it's you can see the patents for it. They've created it. I, I think that one's called scuples. All of these things they have. There's a section in that book that was originally about eight or nine pages long in the book, and I whittled it down to one page and just <laughs> said, here's what they got. And one of the ones that they uh, developed about, well, it's been five or six years ago. They just put the patent out on it or applied for the patent on it after they'd researched it uh, just a couple years ago. But what it is, it creates three-dimensional objects, plasma objects in the sky, and it moves them around. It can make them any shape at all, can make them look any shape. It can, it, you know, they can make impossible speeds at impossible angles, because think of this. You take a flashlight and you're moving it around. It looks like it's making impossible speeds and impossible angles. When you watch, you know, when you watch it out on site, it's like, my God, nobody could live in that. Of course not, because it's not what we think it is. It's not exactly what it actually is. So the Navy has this device that they've already patented. Now, unfortunately, that means other countries will be able to pick up on it. I hate to say it. That's the explanation of all this stuff. Uh, the uh, stuff that we've been seeing uh, about the um, Nimitz and what the pilots have seen. Uh, the pilots could pick it up on infrared, but not visually. So it was done in infrared. I believe that there was radar testing at the mm -hmm. time. I don't think the pilots knew anything whatsoever about it. And they were simply doing a test to see how the pilots would react. And what would they pick up on their new radar? Those were tests of the new radar in those jets. That's why they were off the coast of uh, California at the time. Yeah. And they continue to do those tests. That is what I really believe. I can't. Well, I probably could prove it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> there are <laughs> there are other 
uh, aspects to all this. There are crowd control. There are weapons that have been made. And all of this research was hinted in the 2000s. And I call it a 2006 report because that's the year it came out. Project Condine, C-O-N-D-I-G-N, by the British Ministry of Defense. You can find it online, but it's thousands of pages long. It says in that report, when they say, all right, UFOs, real UFOs, the ones that pilots see, the ones that people are reporting and interacting with, the ones that people say are abducting them and all that, they're plasmas. They appear to have intelligence. And they say, oh, there's uh, probably some government research going on with this and has been for a long time. And certainly there will be. That is what they said in their report. And I found that research in the 1990s published in the government documents in journals, again, that are not online. And there's a lot hidden in there. You can't find it all because in some of the articles, the they always have references, but they'll, re- they'll reference a report, a long number and a grant number, but there's no way to get it. It's been filed away. The physical paper is filed away, classified somewhere, and you'll it'll never see the light of day. There are thousands of those kind of things, and I think that's what Persinger was doing back in the in the seventies, doing research for them, and it's all based off UFO stuff. All of it. That's where it started. (laughs) So the the UFOs influenced the creation of this technology to make the UFOs. It's like a circular. Well, uh, it's a great decoy. I mean, literally the U S Navy in their patent says it's a decoy mechanism. It's creating a three dimensional physical in the sense that a dusty plasma is physical and it is physical and it's picked up on radar and it can, they can turn it into any shape and move it at any speed. So it's truly creating a UFO. Uh, It's not unidentified as we see, but it's definitely an aerial phenomenon because we know pretty much what it is. Uh, But yes, they've been doing this. Uh, There are all different devices they have. Some of them cause a tingling sensation on your skin. You can't see the beam because they keep it out of the visible light spectrum, but you'll feel it. You'll feel a tingling. There are some that are made to burn your skin. And they have one that's actually mounted on uh, crowd control tanks and armored vehicles. And it sends out a huge wide beam. And what it does, it causes heat discomfort. You feel the sensation of heat, which, of course, is radiation. Uh, They're simply hitting you with a type of radiation where it heats up and you go away. You leave the area. That's what people do. And they have that device. That's very well known, too. Uh, To my knowledge, they've never moved. The only ones they've moved and used are the sound devices. And you'll see those on ships. But they do have some of the others, too, on ships. You just don't ever see those. Yeah, man, that's that's fascinating. And now it gets me thinking about people that have schizophrenia and can hear voices and things like that. And I wonder if these people are naturally tuned to a different frequency Frequency. to pick these things up. And I'm not saying they're entities, they might be, but I'm wondering if they're picking up, you know, somewhere else in the electromagnetic spectrum of voices and 
energy coming from here or there. And I would love to stick one of those people in a Faraday cage and, and see what happens. Yeah. See now what that's happens. good. I hadn't thought of that. I have yeah. talked a lot about schizophrenics and visual hallucinations and things. Yeah. Uh, and it's almost like, okay, I I've already given you the clue here. And that is our eyes are, are, uh, Antenna that pick up a very narrow bit of the visible light spectrum. Well, what if they're tuned slightly wider? What if schizophrenics who have visual hallucinations, they are tuned slightly higher? And remember I said there's interaction that occurs between us and whatever. Right. Uh, What if they really are something, seeing something that manifests, but only visible to them? Uh, that's, that's a very interesting question. I don't have an answer to that. I do believe this. I believe that a drug like DMT or ayahuasca, dimethyltryptamine is the active substance in it. I do wonder if those drugs slightly alter the frequency of the rods and cones. That's one of the things that I've wondered about. I know what, what is said in the professional literature in, in psychopharmacology that about synesthenia, where there's bleed over between the senses and so on. Yeah. But I wonder too, like auditorily, uh, I did a lot, I did a lot of LSD. Statute of limitations is passed. You know, I don't worry about it. <laughs> anyway, when early well, you were in early college in, in the 60s. It's yeah, a late 60s, 70s. <laughs> uh, there was like a three year period where I did a lot of LSD. All right. So, during that time period, um, I wondered, I did wonder, what in the world are, are we seeing? What is this? And, you know, I could, I could see music, literally see music. I could smell colors and sometimes taste colors. That is called synesthenia. Yep. Some people pronounce it different ways, but synesthenia is how my major synesthesia. Yeah. 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 So, all right. So that the, the traditional idea is that the drugs are causing like short circuits in the brain. It's like I said, the eyes, the optic nerve goes to the back of the brain, uh, but it passes along the way, passes a lot of other stuff. And your auditory cortex is here on the side. It passes it. Well, the idea is that, well, some of what you're seeing bleeds through to the to the auditory cortex and you're hearing some of the information that you're seeing, which sounds bizarre, but it's just think of wire, just crossing wires. Right. Uh, that's basically what it is. Although it's not really electricity, it's an electrical po- chemical potential. But anyway, uh, I've believed that for a, known that, but I have wondered in recent years, are we really maybe getting tuned to different electromagnetic frequencies because they're all around. And so I also speculate that today with so many frequencies all around us, cell phones, cell towers, radio, TV, uh, all of this, and with particularly the cell phone technology and computers and Wi-Fi, that this is causing a cesspool of electromagnetic energy, which could be causing more mental health disorders, more anxiety, more things like attention deficit, hyperactive disorder in children, which we see skyrocket now, and loads of other issues. I uh, There are many people in the professional mental health field that believe that all this electromagnetic pollution, which in the medical literature, they call it electrosmog. That's the term that they use in, in medical literature. 
that it's causing some harm because we are picking that up mentally, that it well, is interacting about, with us. Well, think about uh, what about a gestating fetus? What about an embryo? And the cells, you know, are trying to replicate and now they're being acted upon by these different frequencies from electromagnetic yep. waves. No research whatsoever done on it. The only thing they look at is, oh, it's not causing cancer. We can't measure right. anything. And the truth is they, they haven't measured anything. I have read the research. Uh, we just don't have uh, the right. Our, our measuring tools aren't that good yet. We're pretty yeah. primitive with that. We, we create the problem and we, we don't know how to measure it. <laughs> yeah. So someday we may have that and may understand. I don't know. Uh, I don't really have a lot of hope for the human race, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I, I don't know. But there's a couple other things I want to just quickly throw sure. at you before we let you go, because, man, it's over two hours already. And I knew this would happen. That we oh, wow. would barely scratch the surface. And it's been an awesome conversation. But. I want to dip into that dark side a little bit. You don't want to talk about, or, you know, you don't want to get into too much, but the whole idea of the skinwalker, I have a little bit of background on understanding what the skinwalkers are. Now, are those the, the shaman that are, are dealing with the, the darker forces? Like you were talking about the, the entropic forces. Yeah. The, the yeah. dark okay. side. So a skinwalker in Native American lore, Navajo, uh, Utes, um, the skinwalker is a shaman who will put on a wolf suit, usually. I mean, a very, very big into becoming the animal. And supposedly a real skinwalker is then able to transform into a giant wolf. But they did... Uh, uh, the, the magical rituals and it was always about getting revenge uh revenge is a big was a big deal uh and so people would go the, the black magicians I, i'm calling them black magicians but they were medicine people who dealt with the dark side so you would go to them uh, which they still exist go to new orleans you can find a lot of them that do the same thing oh you want a hex or a spell put on someone that's what they do so they would descend to the lower world powers. That's what a, one of these shamans would do, descend to the lower world powers uh, and seek their help because the upper world powers wouldn't do it. But once you do that, that's it. So the, the skinwalker uh, involves a number of things. Part of it isn't, isn't just that they would take the skin of like a wolf and wear it uh, to do some ritual. And I, I even hate saying this. I, I'll just tell you one. Uh, they would get a corpse. Um, this is Navajo. They would get a corpse and they would um, cut the skin off of the uh, bottoms of the feet. So you and you totally dry it out and then they grind it into a powder. And that is what's blown into the face of a victim. And the victim then knows they've been cursed, which I, I've already said. I, and the next book that I'm doing in this field, I'm doing others now out of, that are in my profession, other profession, but the next one is going to include this. It's about rituals, but uh, that would tell your intended victim they've been hexed. Remember I said that uh, 
your mental state has a lot to do with what happens when you interact with these forces. So if you believe in that, if you're Native American and you believe in uh, negative shaman or evil shaman, whatever you want to call them, or black magic, magic, somebody blows corpse powder into your face, you know you've been hexed and you have, because of your belief about it, something will probably happen. So your beliefs, pre your your pre-existing beliefs play a role in a lot of this. Uh, but that that is one of the things that a skinwalker would do. But yes, they're negative. They're always negative. And they're used for revenge. And it could be like a tribe's revenge. Oh, you kicked us off your land. We'll go to the to the black magician and they'll have a skinwalker come and curse your land. So that is what it is. Uh, Andrew was on Skinwalker Ranch. He mentions that in the book. Um, He uh, has not been on the show yet. They did film quite a lot. And I believe some Native Americans that have been on there uh, have replicated some of the stuff that he found. Um, But... Uh, did I okay. answer your question? I don't, I don't know. If yeah, I go. no, that's fine. And, and yeah. the reason I, I wanted to bring that up is because it, it's become very popular in this UFO paranormal community. It's on TV now, you know, and, yeah. and they're out there and thinking about them preloading everybody's mind. I mean, it was already seemed like it was already destined to be part of our culture anymore because you know bigelow was involved and there was always this whispering of skinwalker ranch it's haunted that seemed to go on for quite a while but now it's on tv as a as a regular show and sometimes i'm pulling out what hair i have left when i see some of the experiments and stuff that they're (laughs) trying because i'm like no just get a balloon and float it up that's exactly what down. I said. Get, get a five-mile tether and just yeah. <laughs> put it up there with your equipment right up. Just leave it there. Just leave it there, you know. Um, it, it, it's just, you know, oh, wait, we got to fly a plane, you know. No, we don't need to fly a plane, you know. Just just a balloon would be fine with some instruments on it, you know, get a weather balloon. But, um, yeah, so it, it, it's just like this projection of – uh, I guess I guess we could just call it programming into the the consciousness of people around the world that watch this show, yeah. you know, and um, and I know that there's very negative connections to skinwalkers and, and what their background was. And, you know, they were very negative. Yeah. Um, well, there is something going on there. All right, let's make that clear. Yeah. There's something going on at Skinwalker Ranch. I have no, I think some of the stuff that they do is staged. I yeah, hate to say 100%. it. I, I've, act, I've actually sat there with my wife and said, that is acting that they, they've staged. I've made oh, yeah. documentaries myself. I made a whole series years ago called Forgotten History Series. Uh, been on loads of them, a history channel. And I know when it's staged, the truth is they stage almost everything. We were supposed to do ones in the underwater archaeology that we did over 10 years. Uh, and Lo- National Geographic went with us, History Channel, Learning Channel, Discovery, Discovery Kids, History 2, 
BBC, geez, we went with loads of, and they all, none of them want to actually do real research. They say, yeah, we're, we want you to do real research, but no, they want you to go and reenact whatever it is you've already done. Yeah. And it's all acting, all of it. And I, we refused to do that after a while and just said, look, we're, we're just not going to do it. Uh, so, And that's actually why we stopped cooperating with them and kept doing our underwater research for years after it. Uh, but anyway, uh, there's a lot of acting that goes on, but there's something very real going on there. Just like the UFO phenomenon is real. There's something very real happening. There's something very real happening with contactees, with people that claim abductions, with some paranormal phenomena. There's something very real going on. There's real stuff that happens with rituals. These sacred sites, there's real things that have gone on there and still can and do sometimes go on there. It's very real, but it is not what people think. That's really the big message. It is not what they think. It is not a message people want to hear because beliefs enter this. Believe me, Andrew and I both were in the extraterrestrial hypothesis from day one. I was convinced these things were from outer space, but when you really dig into it, Nope. And I knew that pretty quickly. So did Andrew. When we really dug into it, there was something else going on. And we believe this is the solution of what else is going on. And then it, to me, what it seems like, whatever lens you view the world through, whether it's a religious one or a scientific one or a, a, a nowhere, you know, you're just yeah. coming into it blind. That's kind of like, the puzzle you're going to work on is, yep. is through that lens. It's not, there's no, no one real thing. It's real. There's something going on, but your worldview in your own mental state is going to color the results that you get. Exactly. Exactly. And I talked about it being a massive jigsaw puzzle extending mm, yeah. everywhere and people get focused in one little area and I've solved it. I've solved it. And they got one little piece, but they're all over. And the big, the, the biggest problem that I think the field has is th there are so many reports. I talked about it being looking for a needle in a haystack of needles. Yes. Uh, yeah. There that was are, a great comment by the way. Yeah. Just so much being piled on. Well, what about this? What about this? What about the report we just heard from there? What about the report that just happened there? What about this person that was just abducted a week ago and somebody else and this one? Did, and it's just like, oh, my God, it never ends. And it's more and more piled on to this conglomerate. And we all know that that all research has told us about five percent of this pile is probably legitimate. But in that 5%, probably at least half of it is just simply something that it, it is an experimental craft that nobody knows about, or it's something else that is natural that we don't really know much about. It's been seen in an unusual way. But there's still that two and a half, three, maybe 4% that's weird that is something that never shows us it's true form, just like the Zuni clowns. You can't see its true form. It manifests to you in the way that it can communicate to you specifically. Yeah, and see, and that's that's exactly what I was going to ask you, because you, you say something to the effect in the book. I'm going to paraphrase here about how easy it is for skeptics to dismiss ufology because of basically how many factions, how it's uh, fractured belief systems and all of that. 
and it makes it almost impossible to comprehend any of it. So they just hand wave it and say, yeah. forget it. Yeah. It's all nonsense. Yeah. And there, there is, uh, there's comfort in that, you know, for some, some people, there's great comfort. That's all bullshit. You know, they say that yeah. or, uh, and there's comfort in the religious view. Like it's all spiritual. You know, you have answers, you're comforted by it. And I am for that with skeptics. I have been, fighting skeptics that are friends in science for years because they say it's wrong to have anybody believe in God. They're stupid. They shouldn't believe in God. And and what I've told them is, man, you're telling people that something that they do that brings peace and harmony to their life makes them a better person, and they in turn make other people be better. You're telling me that they just need to throw that all away and say there's nothing, that there's nothing. There's no, there's nothing else. There's no God. There's no meaning beyond just existing. I say that's evil to try and force people to believe that is evil. If you want to believe it, I'm okay with that. Believe whatever you want. And that means that if you happen to believe that there's an all powerful God that cares about us, that's great. I have no problem. And I think that's good. Believe in what you need to. Yeah. And I, I do. I, I understand that, that my beliefs are beliefs. They're not facts. I know some things that are facts. But almost everything I accept as a fact is probably a belief because <laughs> things right. keep changing well, and we I learn think, more. I think people, and I see this in the UFO community a lot right now because of like controversial people like Tom DeLong and yeah. Lou Elizondo and things. So some people have come out of the woodwork who will be skeptical of everything. And I think that they need to kind of understand the definition of what a skeptic is. A skeptic isn't you're passing judgment on somebody or somebody's ideas as you know, or beliefs. Like you were just saying, a skeptic is constantly questioning. I think yes. of a skeptic as a two-year-old. Well, why, why yes. is this? Why is that? Well, why do you say that? And then they actually do the, the actual work. I mean, it, it's work people to do real research and hit out, you know, hit the bricks and get out there. You, you know, you got to actually do work and not just sit behind a keyboard and say, somebody's lying. Somebody's bad for the community. Somebody's this, somebody's that their beliefs are stupid, yada, yada. You know, everything's a bird. Everything is a, a trash bag flying through the air, you know, not necessarily question it. Yeah. You know, just keep questioning it. Don't pass judgment. That's so, why I mentioned Carl Sagan, because Carl yeah. Sagan was a skeptic as it, a true skeptic. And he, he concluded, man, they were probably here. Uh, and there is something going on. He said that in his book. There's something going on. We don't understand what it is yet. And that's the kind of thing a skeptic would say. There's something going on. And I say that about the, I'm a skeptic and a lot of UFO stuff. But I've come to know, and I, I'm in my work in psychology, I just know that a lot of these people are telling us exactly what they experienced. Yep. And so you can't just say you were hallucinating. Yeah, people, that just doesn't happen. People nope. do not have those kinds of hallucinations. It doesn't happen. Right. Then Something, you, might as well just, you might as well just consider yourself the next J. Allen Hynek and Project Blue Book and just walk around <laughs> and tell everybody they're crazy. Yes. Which you is what, basically what he did in the beginning. Like, oh, it's a, everything in the sky is a lens flare or which is what he did up in Missouri. He said, oh, here yeah. in Michigan. Yeah. Which, you know, you know I, I suspect he re regretted that in the end. He did. Yeah. He did. But yeah, he was a, a tool. His for the son's government. big in the community now. Oh, I know he is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I never had a chance to meet him, but he seems like he'd be a great guy. I'd like to get him on here to talk to him at some point, but all right, let's wrap this up because man, we're going on two hours and 20 minutes and I knew this was going to be a great conversation, but um, so a couple last questions, just really quick. Do you have any connection to Michigan? Just mounds and uh, no, but mounds. I, I'll, I'll say that my business partner goes up there all the time to Traverse city. Oh, okay. Uh, he goes up there all the time. I've been to Michigan many times. I went up to the, I went, well, I take that back. I have a video online. I went up to the UP and I went to what is known as the Paulding Light. Are you familiar with it? What is it called? The Paulding Light, P-A-U-L-D-I-N-G. I won a lot of money in the casino where we oh. stayed. <laughs> uh, we we took for my wife's birthday a few years ago. We went to Paulding, Michigan. It's okay. in the Upper Peninsula. Yep. And it's had a phenomenon going on for years. You can Google it. You'll have things pop up all the time. Uh, and it, it's a giant light way off in the distance. Um, and I hmm. wanted to go see it. And uh, because it supposedly occurs every night, it does. Uh, and we took some very good uh, video equipment up and pretty much figured out exactly what it was. And we did it by we figured out what it was by videoing in the daytime. Not at night. Everyone videos at night and you can see the light. But almost nobody will go and video in the daytime using really powerful lenses yeah. to where you can really zero in on it. So but that's online. So that's my main connection. Okay. Uh, and and I remember in the casino, there's a casino. There's the only hotel there. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to go in the winter. You already know that about the yeah. UP. Yeah. We stay um, away from there. <laughs> yeah. In the winter. And wrapping this up, where can people find your books and social media links? And, you know, do you have a YouTube channel and uh, any appearances or anything coming up here in the future? Uh, I have, uh, I think, four YouTube channels. The best way to find me, Google my full name. and It's Gregory. Put my middle initial, which is L, Gregory L. Little, L-I-T-T-L-E. Put that full name in. It's all there. It'll all be in the first page, two pages. The first two pages are just all me. Uh, I actually have a uh, a Vita there. You'll see my curriculum Vita, which is there. It's abbreviated, but it's 14 pages long uh, because I have been around a long time and published a lot in a lot of areas. Uh, So that is there. Uh, But you'll find it all there. Social media is listed. I am on Twitter uh, and Facebook and uh, like I say, YouTube channels, but I I don't put much there. Uh, Appearances, I am not doing any. I have been asked repeatedly, have been again recently to do uh, uh, the documentary shows. Uh, There is a show that uh, Ancient Aliens is doing on this book that just, you know, Origins of the Gods. They like are, an actual episode? They're doing a full episode on it. Okay. Uh, Andrew's going to be on that. I am not. I have turned down many, many. I'm not doing any. I'm too old for it. Can't talk. Can't make a straight sentence. Uh, terrible presenter. Terrible <laughs> presenter and all that. So I'm not doing it. I just don't want to do that anymore. There's no advantage. It's a big disadvantage for me. A yeah. big disadvantage. So I'm doing some podcasts. I don't know how much longer I'll keep doing these either for a while. Uh, mainly I, I I told the publisher I would do podcasts to help promote the book. So that's why okay. I'm doing them. If we didn't have this book, if I'd done my own 
and didn't use this publisher, um, I probably wouldn't be doing any podcasts. Uh, oh, so I'm, we're we're very very lucky then to to have you on. I so. prefer to remain in the background. Yeah, I don't do conferences. I have set up a lot and I have arranged speakers and all that. I do that in the background, but I will not give talks and conferences anymore. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm just okay. not going to do it. So there you well, go. Sometimes being the the person behind the curtains is the way to go. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Greg, it's been great having you on. And I just want to thank you. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to have you come on the podcast and speak with us. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I'm honored to have done this. It's it's actually been a lot of fun. I got to talk about things I don't normally talk about. And if we uh arrange it, let's get together and do something again that we have talked about and we'll see. But again, it's a pleasure. And thanks, people, for listening. Uh, don't be harsh, too harsh on us because we don't believe, at least I don't believe that they're all nuts and bolts, you up folks. But then that would be pretty boring. I think what, what we've said here is far more interesting. It's a much more interesting explanation. But anyway, yep. that's me. Thanks again. All right. Well, thank you very much. by that i just uh wow what a bunch of information to take in and we're barely scratching the surface of that book we were just getting through the creation myths and talking about plasma and the u.s navy can create plasma in the sky and move it around as like a radar decoy could this be what people on the princeton and part of that Nimitz group actually saw. That is that is the question. Were they being tested on by some type of a defense contractor with their, I don't know what you would call it, decoy mechanism? I don't know. I still enjoy the, the stories and the talk about um, the trickster gods and, and really anything with Native American mythology. So because it's not something that I get to teach because I'm so centrally focused on Egyptian, Norse and Greek and Roman with my kids. So when I can listen about other mythologies, it's like I'm just in tunnel vision. Well, I do want to say that the plasma thing might be a viable option. But to what you're saying, to your point. I still think that there are some type of intelligences or something. And he did hint at that about these plasma areas being sentient. And that they're able to draw off of your preconceptions of what aliens are or the spirit world or ghost or whatever. And they kind of mimic that, uh, read it from your mind, basically, and then kind of act that out in the, these trickster uh, intelligences and things like that. It's just, it's fascinating. And 
it's all just like he says, one piece of a huge puzzle that, you know, everybody's trying to figure out. So I don't know. It was a great conversation. I do think that there's still something going on, whether it's a transdimensional intelligence or something that these, you know, plasma areas are allowing an entity to enter through like a portal. Um, fascinating stuff though. So everybody, I would just, uh, say that get out there and buy this book or the audio book. The audio book's about 10 hours long and it's read by Micah Hanks. And if you're familiar with UFOs and the paranormal, you know, Micah Hanks from his podcast and he does an amazing job reading the book. So Check it out for sure and see what you think. All right. I think it's time for us to get out of here. It's been a long show. What do you think? I think it is. All right, everybody. Have a good night. Have a great night, everyone. And remember, keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.